Spy cam, a little. I want something. I'm gonna probably get a, you know, dash cam in my car. Yeah. Here is if there's. If you wanted to have a really good spy cam, like a button cam. I don't guess you've ever looked into those, have you? No. You know what? I was. Li- We're on the air right now, by the way. Okay. I have looked into them because of um, problems around uh, the the uh, properties I take care of. Really? Yeah, I mean, we've got people, you know, trying to climb in windows. Sometimes we got people stealing mail, just stuff like that. So yeah, I have actually looked into those little cameras. Why were you going to get one? No, uh, you know, I mean, I actually need a home, you know, security thing. My brother has one of those Arlo's Netgear or whatever. That oh yeah, yeah, really good. I mean, I want to get that just to have, you know, have something around the house. Right, but um, and I, I don't know. I was starting to look at dash cams, and you get the ones that have the front and the back and the rear, you know, cameras. And and I've been was looking at all the other kind of things you can get, and some of the craziest stuff you can get so cheap these days. I mean, but these little wireless cams, like you could stick on the corner if you really wanted to, just put something where no one would think there would be something. You know, could you get a small camera and just stick it in a tree? Yeah, yeah, you can now. It's uh, it's uh, it's actually a problem. I uh, use Airbnbs. I did when I was in New Mexico and <clears throat> a couple days after I visited with you. And there's a scare now that people in Airbnbs actually hide cameras and, like, spy on you while you're staying in their place. I'm traveling by myself. All they'd see me is getting in and out of the shower and stuff like that. So I really didn't care. But, <laughs> you know, you still you like still look. You still, uh, like, whenever you get somewhere, you kind of look around and you look at stuff and... You know, it's it's just my paranoid mindset that's been in my brain since uh, since Project Beta, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of the things that end up getting posted online these days, you know, people are are doing this stuff, but I don't know. Uh, anyway, that's <laughs> one more thing to wait on. Yeah, uh, let me play the intro here, and actually, you know what? I'll play the old one with the uh, since I was playing that uh, Conway Twitty and. Uh, and uh, Loretta Lynn, I'll play this uh, old uh, Ready Mysterioso intro, and um, we'll be right back here with uh, Chris Lambright and uh, X Descending, etc. Whoops. Hey, who? What? Get your hands up. Yeah, where you are, don't move. Don't reach for them guns. Take it easy, you galoots. Put away the hardware and relax. What's <laughs> Greg? interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you 
the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? It's Radio Mysterioso here today for July 8th of 2018, and the guest tonight is Christian P. Lambright, who I met when we were in New Mexico a couple weeks ago. His book, which everybody should read, and I should have read, read all of when it came out, um, is X Descending. Uh, the sub subtitle is Two Extraordinary Films Reveal the Lies, Deception, and Truth About Unidentified Flying Objects. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm doing okay today. We were in New Mexico speaking for the um, uh, there was a pre Dulce UFO base conference because I, I think it was called um, the Dulce UFO uh, base conspiracy conference that Rick Vargas put together. It was you and I and Greg Valdez. Um, right. Yeah. What I told people at the time when I posted a little story about it or a blurb about it or something is this is the first UFO conference I've been to where no one mentioned aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Except the questions you got from the audience, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah well. uh, I, mu I must say that Chris was very brave and stood there and talked to this one woman that just would not stop talking to him until he admitted to her, until well, he agreed with her. Yeah, well, yeah, she got to put me on the spot, but hey. No, but uh, he, he was very polite, and I, I told him later, the reason that I get up in front of everybody and first thing I say is, look, I think there really is something to this. I'm not trying to cut everything down. I'm not trying to, but we ought to know what's not mysterious before, so we can concentrate on what is unknown, and uh, that seems to satisfy most people, so most of the time I dodge that bullet, but yeah, I've had the same thing happen more than <laughs> once, way more than once, which is probably why I try to save myself by just putting that out there just kind of makes some people happy and they go okay you're not the enemy it's like well, i never was the enemy but you either have to be for or against something apparently you can't be uh, you can't be just looking for the answer no matter where it leads you which is why i like chris's stuff <laughs> well if you you know you at some point you have to agree and you do want to answer the question but you just know the minute you answer it in the way you know they want to hear it it opens up all the possibilities that they believe are probably going on, and suddenly you get all this extra information that then you have to stand there and try to be <laughs> be kind and answer. Yeah. But, oh, well. Exactly. And um, th this actually impressed me about Chris, is that um, instead of saying, come on, and, um, <laughs> and saying next or whatever, he actually listened to the woman, tried to respond to what she said, and, and explained more than once what his position was. But uh, she wasn't hearing what she... It was one of those things where you ask the same question a hundred times waiting for the answer that you want to hear. Uh, yeah, and the, then, then you're stuck because you're not really certain how to answer her in a way that she'll be satisfied with because everybody's kind of dancing around and 
you want to listen. I remember, I think I looked back up at you and thought, I'm going to screw myself on this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Uh, anyway. I have no introduction for Chris because uh, all I know about him is from Exodescending and us talking to each other when we hung out in Santa Fe for a couple of days. We went to dinner a couple of times, found out that we were, you know, we came at this uh, subject, or at least the Benowitz subject, from slightly different uh, angles. Um, and also, as I told him before the show, uh, when I find, and this was years ago, the book came out, and I'm an idiot for not talking to Chris sooner on the show. But um, if I find something that either changes, contradicts, clarifies whatever I'm trying to do, I'm eager to have people talk about it because, you know, what, what do we want? We want answers. We don't want, you know, we don't want this culture still of I'm right and you're wrong and this is my little thing and you can't touch it. And no, we'd, we'd all like to find out what, you know, what happened. And in particular with this uh, subject of Paul Benowitz um, and what he filmed. Chris gave me a tiny bit of background on um, his interest in the subject, which if I haven't had somebody on the show, usually start out with that. How, how many shows have you been on talking about the book, it's, You know, particularly when it came out? A few? Uh, a few. A few, yeah. I think uh, George Knapp was one of the first on Coast to Coast. There were a couple of early Martin Willis may have actually been the first. Ah. And there was, then there was one in between that I prefer to forget. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think the guy was drinking a little bit and... Um, been a few. I think I've been a Martin again, maybe a time or two now. No. But, um, but yeah, I've listened to your show plenty of times, believe me. Really? Well, that that's nice to hear. You know what? I'm not going to ask you why you listen to the show. Obviously, you enjoy it. Um, no, it's the subject. I mean, the subject. It's If it's an intelligent conversation with people who have intelligent things to say and who you would assume would have some position that put them privy to the information that's accurate. Yeah. Then I'd rather hear it from the horse's mouth than read it third hand in books by people who are just repeating what someone else already wrote. And at some point, everybody thinks it's gospel because so many people have have said it. Right. But you know, plus they all got it from the same person, and then he got it from them, and it's a big circle. So. Yeah, that that's usually how a lot of this goes. And then you know, you contradict something somebody said third hand, and they get really upset with you. So we're yeah. we're trying to stay away from that. You said that you had. Um, what you hadn't told me when we met is that uh, you had some kind of debate in middle school on UFOs, and that kind of piqued your interest a bit. Yeah, you know, we were talking about chronologies and how you start looking back on when things happen. And when I was first working on the book, of course, I began to think, how did I ever? <laughs> of course, I think yeah. that a lot these days. How did I ever get into this? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I think the first real recollection that I have, I think, was in the seventh grade. For some reason. We were doing these little panel discussions where there were five of us and two people would take the pro side and two would take the, the con side or whatnot. Right. And I ended up being the moderator sitting in the middle. And, you know, I remember we were, gosh, I, you know, trying to just do some curious staged, you know, pictures and putting tinfoil around a Frisbee and I'd go throw it. My dad would throw it up over the roof and I'd photograph just to show people how you can't be too sure, you know, that what you're seeing is something real. But that's the first experience that I really recall. And oddly enough, I was in Kansas City at the time, all the way through high school. And somewhere, this was back in the, in the 70s. And um, now I take it back. I, we were there 60, yeah, well, it would have been early. And I just remember at one point, my parents dropped me somewhere downtown. And there was a conference. And I knew who Heineck was. <laughs> I didn't talk to him, but I just remember seeing him walk right by me and that strange strange memories you have yeah but i was into model rockets and everything else at the time too so 
Um, so, and even then, it wasn't until years afterwards, I guess at some point when I was in college, my final year, we had a course in parapsychology. Edgar huh. Mitchell, Edgar Mitchell had, uh, he had kind of pushed, promoted a book on parapsychology. And of course, that's where I first remember reading, hearing about remote viewing, how I put off all these things. I met, the professor was a superb guy. Dr. Thompson looked like Santa Claus if he shaved. But, uh, <laughs> he was a terrific, terrific open-minded guy. And, and um, in fact, I was living in, in Waco at the time going to Baylor. And um, that's where I met probably my longest running friend in, uh, in this subject, Tommy Bland. He was in, in the area at the same time. And I looked him up from some article I think he'd written that was in one of the UFO magazines. And we've been friends ever since. I talked to him every day. But um, but I, it wasn't until years later, I think, I had grown up in Southeast Asia. My parents were missionaries. I think I told you this before. And, uh, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until years later I had come across the Father Gill case. And I happened to be talking to my mother about this intriguing case that had taken place, you know, on the other side of the globe. And when she says, well, that's, that's about the same time we had the sighting we had. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And apparently at that time where we lived, it was a little town on the uh, eastern side, kind of down towards the Bali area, but on that end. And Jakarta, the capital, was the only place airplanes flew into. It was on far on the western end of the island. So you didn't have any aircraft flying low at night. And there was almost no electricity except at some of the, you know, the hospitals and the houses. And the mayor had some of my parents were out there and about 30 other people, from what I was told, you know, sitting outside watching a movie on a little screen outside in the front yard. And some object apparently came in. My parents said, couldn't really, it was so bright, you couldn't tell if it was one big light or all lit up with little lights, but about twice the height of a coconut tree, and it just drifted in slowly over the chairs. Everybody's looking up suddenly thinking, whoa, that's a UFO. (laughs) And it was there for a little while, or a few moments, I guess, and then it just moved away, kind of made a little V as it moved off. And what threw me about it was they said nobody ever talked about it afterwards. Even on the way going home, apparently, with the other missionary couple they'd come with, nobody really brought it up. And that just stunned me. How can you see something that's so far out of any sense of what should be? You know, there shouldn't have been anything flying down there, let alone something like that, that you would even then look up and recognize as, whoa, you know, flying saucer material. Yeah. And nobody even bring it up. You know, so I don't know. I guess it strikes different people differently, or maybe there's something to that angle of this whole phenomenon. I, you know, I can't tell you. But anyway, needless to say, after after my final year of college, I was really interested in this, and I've just kind of done it on my own ever since. And along the way, met some terrific people. I met Ray Stanford, and at one point, finally drove down to his house here in Austin before he had moved to uh, to Washington, where his wife worked at Goddard, and that's where I was first shown so much of the material that he actually had. Um, you know, I'd met, I knew who he was because of his Socorro book, and of course that was a case, and still is a case I'm really interested in. Mm-hmm. But um, it was then in Austin, sitting at his house, when, this is, keep in mind, before, really, before computers were prevalent anywhere, um, and looking at the images that he had taken of, uh, especially the, uh, the film that I wrote about in my book that he took, and I knew, right, I mean, that's like looking at something and you just know, there's no doubt, you know, that your the hair goes up on your arm and you know this is, I remember looking at it and telling him when this comes out, it's going to change everything. It's that, it was that clear. And of course, since then, we've spent a lot of time on, on you know, doing Photoshop and image enhancement, that sort of thing. 
but I've been friends with Ray ever since and Tom and I knew Tom Adams and Gary Massey and been a long, long ride still here. <laughs> a little ways more to go, hopefully. So you were, uh, the, it was, it was kind of forefront in your mind and you were doing this in, in your adult life starting sometime in what, the late seventies was that? Uh, I graduated in 76, so uh-huh. my, final, my final year, and I think it was Dr. Thompson. Um, and oddly enough, the final year, I took a course in logic. Ah. And that makes life difficult <laughs> when you re- realize you have to be sensible about things. And you begin to identify when things don't really add up, but they sound good. You know, it sounds believable. But um, the final year in studying in the course in parapsychology, and my father was a psychiatrist, and honestly, I think... A lot of my interest in these kind of consciousness areas stems from my father. Um, but anyway, and after that, for some reason, the whole idea, the whole UFO phenomenon per se, like everyone else, you start reading everything you get your hands on. And, and at first, it's all gee whiz, and it's interesting and exciting. And along the way, you have plenty of downsides when you find out something's not true or something wasn't true or the, it was a, a hoax or but enough of them had, had held up, and it was not long after that that um, actually everything started. I was going to do an illustrated book on uh, UFO sightings. This was back when I was doing oil paintings, and there was no computer and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually have, I got two completed, and the third one, the Father Gill's one, which is halfway completed, and I've still got it. Um, the first one I completed was actually one based on the Piedmont, Missouri sightings. Tom had gone and investigated that and had some really good material. But at one point I was talking to Heinick. I, he, had, he had come to wherever we were, Dallas somewhere, and uh, just walking along. And he said, whoa, yes, if you could get like 50 illustrations in a, you know, in a colorful book. I'm like, my God, it's taking me forever <laughs> just to do the ones I'm doing because it has to be visual. There's no point in painting something dark. And... Um, and getting information enough to make me feel confident that I was doing one that wasn't going to be exposed as a hoax, the whole thing finally right. just petered out under its own, you know, under lack of time to do it all. But um, but that eventually is grew into you know my interest in even doing film, video. That's why I'm here in Austin now. I have some ideas, documentary on the computer behind me. Some things I've done for Socorro. That's one of my plans at this stage. It looks pretty good so yeah. far. Pretty good, but. Um, yeah, you told still me about that. Still interested in the subject. It's just I don't, I don't dwell on everything. There are no, you can't. A number of cases I'm interested in, but there's probably two or three, four that I've stuck with. You know, Paul Benowitz especially for uh, all these years. Uh huh. Um. Anyway, it's a that that's an interesting one because you know, I don't know. We were talking a little while ago. You know, I'm not. Uh, I wrote this book about the two films because I saw this connection to uh, the Air Force Weapons Lab, Air Force Research Lab. Right. But I'm but I'm not trying to I'm not dissing anybody there. I you know I anyway that's well anyway we'll go on we'll let you do your part of this and I'll stop talking for now. You you talk for as long as you want. If if the if the guest gets uninteresting, I cut in. That's <laughs> just well, how it works. Yeah. If you're you still up, interesting, like, I will I will let you go. At least interesting to me, you know that that's that's well, all that counts, right? <laughs> yeah, this you know I believe me. I talked about this. I can talk all day, but I'd rather answer questions that you want to know than just talking randomly about things that uh, that I know. But that's okay. We can we can follow these to their to their uh, conclusion, or you know make the conversation go in the way it's going to go. How <laughs> did you? 
Well, first, can you describe um, X Descending? What's the book about? You say two films. You know, describe what two films you're talking about, how they relate to each other, um, and why you thought this was important. Because when I saw this, uh, your presentation, because I'd read the book a long time ago, and I thought, yeah, that that seems pretty interesting. That that seems like a pretty good um, explanation of what was going on. But seeing you talk about it and all coming up again, I thought, actually, this is fairly important, and it is... It, like I said, it uh, uh, modifies a lot of what I said in my book in, in Project Beta. And um, if you read, I think uh, Nori Hayakawa suggested this, read X Descending, Dulce Base, and Project Beta, and you get somewhere in the middle there, you might get an idea of what was going on. Um, so uh, to rephrase the question or repeat it, you know, what are these two films? Why did you think they were related and important? All right. The, the two films individually each of them individually have nothing to do with each other they're not they're totally different cases the 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 first one of course is the paul benowitz's films that he took from his roof in albuquerque which a lot of people know most of the story of paul benowitz Mm -hmm. and um and in fact when you were working on your book and you were talking first contacted me i just started on mine and that's why i said well i'm working on some of this stuff as well Mm -hmm. and and now that it's all said and done and we know each other Believe me, I have your book right next to me here. I just had all my Paul Benowitz material, and I have your book with it because I think I even told you. I said, you know, they they do complement each other because I mm-hmm. was stre- I was focusing only on about a one year span from mid seventy nine to mid or late nineteen eighty. I think it's an and, important span. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, but you were picking up from nineteen eighty and explaining everything, the whole everything that came afterwards, and you know the the Paul Benowitz material afterwards, which is. Believe me, the fallout in this case is every bit as important to be note to, to, to take note of as what what led up to it. Mm-hmm. So in this particular case, though, I had I had heard way back, and of course it wasn't probably 1982, 83, somewhere in that range, that um, you know, my friend Tom through the grapevine he had heard about some guy in New Mexico who's picking up strange signals and whatnot. And of course now, if people look back, you'll realize. And of course, Paul had this all this started at the end of seventy nine and ongoing by nineteen eighty three a lot of the the real dirt of it all when the how all these things had already occurred some of the documents right. were were out there but when I began to pick up on it and somewhere along the line when the it got you know this, the crazy sounding things that were being said and attributed to Paul and at some point you know I began to think this is ridiculous you know nobody at the Air Force is going to have a meeting with a brigadier general wasting his time if this is what it was, if it's aliens projecting into his mind, you know, that crazy sounding, something didn't make sense to me. And so at one point I finally called Paul and asked, you know, we were talking and I've got even the first letters I wrote him afterwards. And I think I've some tapes, old cassette tapes with the conversations on it. And somewhere along the way in that conversation, I just I don't know why it occurred to me to ask, but I asked him. I said, "Well, well, wait. What was it that, what was it that you originally called the Air Force about?" And oh, it was the films that I took from my roof. And I'm like, "What? I hadn't heard anything about those. I didn't know anything about it. I mean, like everyone else, I had the documents, the Kirtland documents. Everything seemed to be occurring in the middle of 1980. All of that, the helicopter mechanic, all of this. And I'm like, but there's no mention." 
that Paul had contacted them about some films that he had gotten. And I began to ask him about that. And we talked more about it. And I was like, wait a minute. There's nothing mentioning this. And this supposedly happened long before. And subsequently, not, not too long after that, I was asked to, uh, to talk at the local MUFON, the Dallas MUFON group had called and asked me to, to talk there. Uh, I guess somebody, Cheyenne, some, whoever was running it, had kind of heard I was interested in the Paul Benowitz material. And Paul sent me a box, oh, about 18 by 2 feet by 3 or 4 inches thick, box full of these mounted photographs that he had from some of the material that he, you know, things he had taken up in the Dulce area uh, prior to his rooftop films and then a yeah, whole we'll, we'll get to that most people don't know about that and i didn't when i did uh, project beta so go ahead well so he sent me these pictures of these objects and even then even blown some of them were blown up you know eight by ten or excuse me eight and a half by eleven photos mounted on these black you know boards which from looking at it i could tell these weren't brand new mount jobs he had not just done this to send them to me so i never asked him where you know where they were from but for some reason i had this feeling he had to mount these to present them to somebody else, to someone who was going to show them, maybe the 19 November meeting or something. But it was very clear. These are not just little lights, what he was seeing and what he had, you know, some of what you saw in Santa Fe and what I wrote about in the book. So I had this film. Uh, excuse me. I had these these pictures from Paul's film that he had taken. And, of course, in the documents after the meeting that took place in 1980, it talks about one of the individuals from the Air Force Weapons Lab had gone and talked to Paul and suggested he apply for an Air Force grant. And I think subsequently it didn't pan out. It, apparently he didn't get a grant. Later on it wasn't going to happen. So that was just of note to me. I thought, okay, that was in my mind. In 1985, in, uh, excuse me, in early 1986, when I went to visit Ray, as I was looking at some of the material he had, he asked, do you want to see this film that he'd gotten not too long ago, back at the very end, I think it was October of 85. And he had taken some film from Corpus Christi. There's a long story behind it. I explained it in the book. And he put the slide, slide screen up and he showed this image, a shot right from his film, bright blue on a slide screen, full blue. And in the middle was this small object. You, I had to get up and walk up there and look at it. But it was not like anything I'd ever seen before. And then looking at some of the other pictures and especially the things that have come up since, whoa. You know, I, I've told Ray many times, driving home from his house was almost one of those crisis of psyche moments when you realize everything you've been trying to find this, see this great evidence of, and here this guy is and he's got it. I have to wonder if it's like Ray and his recent, uh, you know, the uh, accolades he's been getting for his dinosaur track work. If... He, he's told me, you know, the people who thought maybe he was faking it until they come to his house and they go in and look at all the stuff he's got. And suddenly they're like, OK, OK, we don't need you to take us where you found him. We know. And you are suddenly you're a believer all the way. And Ray proved himself in that case. And in this case, I looked at these images from his film and it was like, whoa. And it was not your quintessential, you know, thing, something you'd go look on YouTube and it's a flying disc. You know, it wasn't sitting there like a Frisbee in horizontal. This thing was flipped up on its side full face going right into the, you know, to the air, let's say. And this odd beam would on occasion project. He had taken some separate images and you could see this indications of a beam of some sort that was coming out of the middle of this thing. And I can still, rem you know, remember, however good my memory is, I can still remember looking at this thing and being just, you know, at some point you can look at a piece of, 
a picture and you know this is the real thing. This is not a Photoshop job, which, of course, they didn't really, I guess, have Photoshop around then. But um, but so I got really intrigued with that film. And it was in around 1992 or 93. You know, Ray and I had been friends ever since. And this was back in the days before the Internet really had forums and whatnot. You had discussion groups or mail serve mail lists mm-hmm. where every mm-hmm. night, every night you could either get a whole big chunk of, you know, the, the recent forum, the recent posts on there. And I had subscribed to one actually because Ray mentioned, you know, that think we're advancing in our technology. Now it's going to get harder and harder to tell what really might be a genuine, you know, something in the UFO phenomenon and what's simply a, an advanced aircraft of our own. So unless you kind of keep an eye on what's going on. So I subscribed to this, uh, this listserv or mail list called the Skunk Works Digest. Yeah. where you'd have advanced enthusiasts, aviation enthusiasts and with advanced aircraft, and they'd talk about things coming out of, you know, out of Area 51 and Lockheed and the Aurora and that sort of thing. And one night I got home and just looked through this list, and here was a dis- – somebody had posted a, uh, a link and some mention of this really interesting experiment that had been done by a man up at an institute up in uh, in New York – and it had to do with, well, basically, it was a, it was an image of taken from inside what you would call a hypershock tunnel. It's like a wind tunnel, but it's for hypersonic speeds. Mm-hmm. And and I won't go into how that works. People can look that up on the internet. But it was the picture that was in there that really got me because, for that matter, you're looking through, a, if I recall, you're looking through like a small window into this section where you put your model inside the, the setup. Mm-hmm, and in, right. there, in there was like a discus. If you remember back in the college and days when you throw a discus, it's a little round kind of a elliptical disc-shaped thing. But you had, obviously, it was a disc-shaped thing sitting on edge. And right out of the middle of it, like a candle right in the middle of the cake, sticking forward was a long spike, like a welder spike. Apparently, what he was shown in the image was, and I, I reproduced... I reproduced it in my book to avoid copyright laws, but it's accurate that when yeah, I mean, the sh- you did a uh, you did a artist uh, a, a, using yeah. your artistic skills you you did a, made a uh, accurate enough um, illustration of it. Yeah, I was looking at the real thing while I'm trying to reproduce this to try to make sure I'm not misleading anybody. But the point was, it shows clearly that at the moment the hypershock air comes towards the model and you fire an electric spark at the end of this welder spike or this little prong sticking out, you can see the air just diverge and right going right around the edge of the of the object. The point being that by projecting energy out front, you cause the air to separate before it hits right on the object and you reduce drag substantially. So you can go from hypershocks, hypersonic speeds and just if you can project energy out in front of the vehicle, you can just slow, keep moving the air out of the way. So you're actually flying along in a low-density tunnel, so to speak, a little channel right behind by moving it with the air without needing a spike. Well, that was interesting, and I remembered Ray's picture that I'd seen from his film. And I should have clarified this to begin with. Ray's film was taken in Corpus Christi, I believe in October of 1985. He was there with his – this is one of those things that gives you the ring of truth – he was there with his children, and he said, I'd always told my children, if any one of them ever sees anything unusual, I'll give them 10 bucks. <laughs> so he primed his children as observers. 
And they're out in on a place that I believe is called Emerald Bay Cove, out on the in Corpus Christi on the on the the beach and the ocean and whatnot. Right. And they're out there, and his kids kids suddenly start pointing out this. Hey, Dad, look, what's this? And he looks up and he sees a procession of these objects coming almost. I don't recall the exact direction. They may have been coming kind of flying more towards inland from out off the coast. But he said he about dropped his bag. If you knew Ray, you'd know one of the things I remember is he had this camera that he carried with him everywhere. He had a backpack and in it was this, I think it may have been a 16 millimeter camera, but he had it everywhere. So he's yanking this thing out as fast as he can. And he starts filming this procession of these objects going overhead. And he said he ran out of film after about the fourth one, but one would come over and it'd go over and then, then it would apparently turn and bank and go on up into the, to the heavens and he's filming each of these as they go by. And you can actually see the angle change in the film. You know, you see one approaching more and you're seeing more of the face. And then it turns and you're seeing more of the back. And there's some strange things that happen around these objects. But he said the last one, the seventh one, was different. I wish he'd gotten this on film. But he said it was more like, if I recall, this description was similar to like the uh, the glass of an hourglass. Kind mm. of a figure eight, figure eight shape. Yeah. But he said it was rotating. It was apparently horizontal, but it was spinning. And the next to last of the objects that he was filming originally slowed down until this last object caught up with it, and then they both moved off together. So, obviously, you have something that's not just requiring it maintain full speed. If it can slow down and wait for the other one to catch up, right. there's something else going on. Uh-huh. But, but the point was, it was the way the things were flying kind of on edge, pancaked, right, full face into the... Into that I looked at that picture that I'd seen in the uh, in the little article online, and I called Ray, and I said, Ray, you you know he said he says that I told him, man, somebody may have gotten into your material and you know looked at your stuff because, but I told him, in, needless to say, I, my point was to say, Ray, look at this experiment. It sounds a lot like what you've you know got on film. It's a disc on edge facing right into the shock wave coming at it. He's projecting energy of some sort out front that's diverting the shock wave. I said, I can't pronounce this guy's name. And when I tried to pronounce it, he goes, oh, that's so-and-so. He was here a couple of years ago looking at my film. <laughs> so, and I fell out of my yeah, chair. Yeah, yeah to, to, to summarize, uh, what happened was uh, Ray Stanford had filled something, this famous film that people keep saying that he won't release. <laughs> you have seen it. Two other people I know have seen it. and they've, uh, And apparently others have seen it, too. Uh, UFO type researchers and that he won't release this film but uh, what it shows is some kind of disc shape at least the uh, in the relevant part you're talking about some sort of disc shaped object on edge with some sort of electrical discharge coming out the front and uh, flying around through the air doing these various maneuvers and then a few years later you said you saw um, this thing in a wind tunnel that looked either exactly the same or very similar to what he had yeah, I mean, it was so striking just the way it was standing on edge. I mean, who would who would stand up a you know a frisbee flies horizontally? It's yeah. least least resistance just flying that way. Why would you fly pancaked? You know that made no sense at all. Yeah, unless, tested in a wind unless, tunnel with its long side facing into the the airstream. Right, and one of the things that I do recall, and I tried to recreate this, and uh, you know, Ray and I. <laughs> This guy's a, maybe if if I can finally get to where I can publish the book, you know, I'll get ready to offer me up one frame that I can put in here so you'll see. But I did show him and he looked and we went back and I revised. So I believe it's accurate enough. And especially on the cover, if you'll notice, 
for whatever reason, it doesn't look perfectly circular. It almost looks like it's octagonal or hexagonal. There seems to be right. some straightening, straightness to the edges. Right. I, but I do recall that in some of the images, and keep in mind, I'm trying to be as honest that, okay, it was 20 or 30 years ago in 1986, and but I've seen images of them since, that at times this, like a haze, almost like a plasma or some sort, would tend to build up on the surface of this thing. And at that point, there seemed to be some small structure dead center, like I keep telling myself, it, it, it's just vague, but it reminded me of a, like a little tower structure of some sort that was right dead center. And at some point, whatever this buildup of energy or plasma on the surface would suddenly squeeze towards the center and shoot out up like a rectilinear antenna, maybe the right way to say it, straight out this tower. And when it did, the surface of the object seemed to be a little bit more visible. And you could make out some patterns of, you know, Ray's analyzed these things and we've worked over this stuff. You know, I will defer to Ray for, so I'm not misstating something that I'm trying to base on memory. But these are the most unusual looking things I had ever seen. I'd never seen something flying that way. I'd never seen something behaving that way. And since then, one of the most notable things that Ray has shown to me and that I look at now all the time, and I'm sure he's shown it to other people, is don't just stare at the object itself. You're going to miss the forest if you're staring only at the trees. That it's it's the effects that are going on in the atmosphere around the object. And, of course, now with image enhancement software, you can really pick out some subtle little changes in, in contrast or pixel colorations, whatever. But there are a lot of things happening around this object. You can actually make out some of the atmosphere divergence ahead of this beam. This was just visually you looking at it uh, uh, in his house, right? Not, not yes. You don't have a still of it where you've enhanced it or anything. Oh, I've got a... I do have stills of it here. I mean, I've oh, got, okay. I, you know, in, in deference to Ray, and I, you know, I promise him I'm not going to, I won't release what I've got. But Ray is a good enough friend that he'd send me images of things that he wanted me to look at, and oh, I okay. do my number on them. And then yeah. sometimes, you know, sometimes I couldn't quite make something out, and I defer to Ray's visual acuity. I think this guy has got probably the most amazing visual acuity of anyone I've ever known. He seems, he used to tell me he seems to be able to see patterns in chaos. <laughs> and I believe it. Look at the dinosaur track success he's had in places they say there are none and Ray's finding them. But he's also just heightened awareness. You know, he knows what he's wanting to see. But I've seen these images of these objects and other ones that he's sent me. And there is a lot more than just this film. Let me make that very clear. I talked about this film because the gentleman who ran the experiment, who I had ex eventually exchanged some emails with, but... But within a few years, I found out he has a contract working with the Air Force Research Lab. And I'm like, wow, isn't that an interesting coincidence that here is a guy who has seen what Ray filmed and has shown that there's potential benefits. I mean, he actually came out with his own concept. It was mentioned in Aviation Week and Space Technology about directed energy and how to use it. I mean, that I'm telling you. He got this is what Ray filmed is what the inspiration was, even though we may not be able to do it yet. But you can you can certainly you know see where it came from. And but Ray yeah. has, what, Ray what has you, got, sorry to interrupt you. What so, you told me is this guy had 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 visited Ray at some point in the past before all these all this information. I'm sorry, before all this research became public, he had actually visited Ray in person and looked at his films. Yes. It this long story short. 
there was a young man that knew Ray from back in Austin who had apparently gone to college up north and was in one of the classes for this gentleman. And I may have a couple of the minute details wrong, but this is essentially correct. Mm-hmm. And in, in one of these engineer, aerospace engineering courses, because this gentleman was an expert aerospace engineer, I think hands down everybody would agree to that. But in one of the courses, something to the effect, he's told by this young man, the student, you know, you should go see what Ray's got. You'll be years ahead of where you are now. <laughs> and eventually, I don't know that it was within that year, but at some point there was something going on in the Washington area. And I believe both of them, the young man and the scientist, went and just went over to visit Ray. And as Ray seemed to suggest, oh, he ended up staying there for a day or two looking at all this. And this is provable. I mean, when he went back and did some drawings, changed some things he was thinking, sent Ray some copies of the material that he had put out. So this is all known. Um, the, the difficult part for me, and I'm not, you know, I am, I'm for the truth to come out. I, you know, if somebody doesn't want to buy my book and they want to see it, I'll, I don't, everybody flood me. Right. But I would, the whole, it was not about the money. You know, I would rather you see it however you need to see it. Because it's important that I think this be out there. It's not that different now than a lot of the things that we're hearing about the two, the stars and the Pentagon program and Luis Elizondo, who I think is one of the most believable sounding people you've ever heard. It needs people need to have the right to have that conversation. When I first heard about this, the scientist and visiting Ray and seeing what he had done. And, and I talked you want to, to use his name because it's in the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, Professor Lake Mirabeau. L-E-I-K-M-Y-R-A-B-O? Right. Okay. A brilliant guy in his own right, no doubt. But when when I first found out about all this, and I almost, back in the day, had a little website of my own called UFOs A Closer Look. You can probably go back to the Wayback Machine, you know, the archives.org and find it. Um, And I had started to write something about this. It was profound to me at the time. And before I published it, I started thinking twice and had second thought. And I talked to Ray, and it was like, this guy is doing something good. It's, I'm not interested in outing him. I'm not out there to make a name out of it. And so I censored the article myself. Ah. I, took, I took out the connection that Ray knew this person. This person had been to visit Ray. Right. I simply made the point of look at the similarity between these images, you know, this film that Ray had, and what has been done in this hypershock experiment. Look at this. It, you know, so I, I put it there. At least if nothing else, you can go back and find the article and see that it is there. But um, but I decided, you know what? Eh, I'm not out here to needlessly publicize this for nothing. Because I was really certain, I really was, that within a few years, this guy will stand up, you know, like some of what Hal and Eric Davidson and these guys are doing. They'll stand up and say, oh, yeah, look at this, that he will come back and credit Ray. Because Ray deserves at least the credit for having had the awareness in this film that showed this. And waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. You know, went all the way up till finally at one point, I just, I was really back to the Benowitz case. I wasn't going to say anything to this guy, but he's an aerospace engineer. He knows his stuff. Maybe he would have some clue about what Paul Benowitz filmed. So... I finally did send him an email and I said, you know, I'm a friend of Ray. 
I know you've been to see him. Ray was glad to see what you've done. I have a question. Do you mind if I just ask you, not related to Ray? And he wrote back, fire away. Hmm. That's why That's why it's the title of one chapter in the book, fire away. That's all he wrote back, fire away. Yeah. So I sent him a link to the articles that I had had written about the Paul Benowitz stuff that was on that uh, UFOs A Closer Look site I had running at the time. And I just asked him, I said, I'm curious. This guy took these films. Do you have, I mean, if you were going to guess, being an aerospace engineer and professor and whatnot, if you had to guess who on this planet, in our country, anywhere, if you had to guess who might have been able to build these things, who would it be? And I honestly expected, I wouldn't have been surprised if, if he just wrote back and said, I have no idea. I wish I could help you. <laughs> if he had just come back and said, I don't know, what, what's, that would have been the end of it. But yeah. he never replied at all. Nothing. I didn't get anything back. It just stopped. And I didn't pursue it. I just let it go at that point. But within a couple of years, suddenly I'd go back and look up his name, see if he shows up anywhere, see if I see anything new about his experiments. And that's when I find out, okay, he's now working on his laser light craft under a contract or grant that he's got through the Air Force Research Lab Propulsion Directorate. Oh, really? Okay. So mm-hmm. at that point, I was like, all right, well, maybe that explains why he dropped the whole thing like a hot potato. Because, like as I said earlier, Paul Benowitz is right there at Kirtland. And by this time, I believe this is about the right date, the Air Force Research Lab became the kind of umbrella organization for all these other little labs. And the Air Force Weapons Lab that was at Kirtland, where Paul was, was now the Space Vehicles Directorate. And out at Edwards Air Force Base was now the Air Force Research Lab Propulsion Directorate. So when I realized, okay, well, wait a minute. I'm asking this guy to comment about some things that were seen flying off (laughs) and around Kirtland Air Force Base where the Air Force Research Lab Space Vehicles Directorate is. Boy, did I step in it. (laughs) And that was kind of the way I felt. Oh, wow. I asked this guy to do something that I should have known and maybe for good reason, you know, he didn't need. So I let it go. But I did keep tabs on, you know, what he'd been doing, what was going on. This is, was, this is Mirabeau still. Yes, this is Mirabeau. You okay. know, I began to watch the, because they would be published information on his laser light craft. And eventually I began to think, now, wait a minute. You know, OK. You might have now, to explain the laser light craft here in a minute, too. But go ahead. Yeah, okay. Um, and that's that, his That idea. goes into that, the next part of the uh, discussion, too, but go yes. ahead. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, no, the, the, point, the point of it really is Mirabeau is a brilliant guy and has these ideas for what he calls light craft that are essentially the smaller models he was testing at the time are ones that you could, you could so machine them, you could manufacture them, so that if you pulse a powerful laser beam directly at the bottom, it would refocus the laser light into this annular ring or a ring, if that's the correct term, near the base, and it would basically almost just explode the oxygen. You're propelling this device by causing this combustion underneath the ring surface of the bottom, which drives it forward. And so you would spin it, so it would be spinning like a top. It would be almost naturally stable at that point. And begin to pulse these lasers. And, of course, back in the day, you had Reagan Star Wars research. So we had a lot of lasers that were being developed, really powerful ones and whatnot. And some of these, I think, are what were being used to test this device. So you could probably still find them on the Internet now, some of the videos that were done of these objects spinning shiny chrome-looking 
top yeah. shape vehicles. You, you can see them online. I mean, you, you can see uh, right. the, these uh, laser propelled uh, little objects. They're like test. They're yes. like little tests. They're like you know maybe six inches wide or something, and yeah. maybe it, ten yeah. inches exactly. high or something. Exactly. The interesting part to me was, I remember at the time living in Dallas, up at the near University of North Texas. I saw an article, I think it was Popular Mechanics that came out at the time, that was talking about this idea for these light craft. But the illustration on the front cover wasn't a small six-inch device. It was now a large disc-shaped size, you know, able to carry a person in it sort of thing. And even though it was operating under the idea of laser propulsion, up at the front of it, you could see a beam was being projected and converged out into a point in the front that would cause the atmosphere to go out of the way. That was termed a directed energy air spike. So you'll hear the term air spike, but in this case, I want to be sure we're talking about what was called directed energy air spike, which was a concept that he proved in that little experiment in his hypershock tunnel. And eventually, it would be very, very useful if you were projecting almost any type of aircraft up through the atmosphere. If you could be pulsing energy out in front, that would just move the atmosphere out of the way. Then you drop the the equivalent drag that you normally would have to you know, push your way through. Mm-hmm. You drop that drag down to almost nothing. And there was another brilliant guy out in Phoenix, I think at the University of Arizona, named Kevin Kramer who actually had come up with some really great ideas on how to project this kind of energy out front. I think all that's in the book. People can find it if they want. But needless to say, if you go and look back through all the archives of even NASA's breakthrough propulsion physics sites and whatnot, you'll begin to see some very, for lack of a better way to to call it, very UFO-like illustrations of these large light craft, big enough to carry a whole crew and propelling themselves into space using, you know, both the laser light energy. And in some cases, what Mirabeau had projected was once we got to where we would could have platforms out in space that could also project energy down to the craft as it's rising in the air, then you use some of that to not only help pro- propel you, but you use that energy to form the directed air spike out front. Now, all of this right. begins to look a lot like what Ray has on film. Right. Even though, even though, if people will go back and look, I read some studies and surveys done by the people at NASA who looked at these and, and basically call this, this is a very forward-thinking idea, but we just don't have the technology. We don't have the platforms, let alone the power generation, to have in microwave energy being beamed from space and the ground to make this stuff happen right now. So it's, right, right. it's futuristic and it's viable in that way, but we don't have the way to actually make it work. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. So they, there were so ideas it, to like push these things up into the atmosphere. And then when it's cleared, you know, the first 10 or 20 or 30,000 feet where most of the fuel and the air uh, resistance and all that, that they could then switch on, you know, regular uh, rocket motors too, as long as they could get something to lift all that, mi- minus that first stage out, yeah. and and you know, save all that energy and everything and and fuel and all that going through the first, like I said, thirty thousand feet or so of the atmosphere or more. Yeah, and his experiments at, uh, you know, with the Air Force Research Lab proved the point that you can use laser energy focused onto the bottom of an object and convert that energy one way or the other 
to a propulsive force. Yeah. So eventually he was hoping to launch these things into either low Earth orbit or you have microsatellites that you could send up you know, right. at, at will. I don't know that it I don't know where it went. He had a website, Lightcraft Technologies, and it's no longer you know, no longer his. I don't know whether someone else took over the name or what. But um, I know at one point he had been uh, working. He actually formed this little Lightcraft Technologies company with Franklin Mead, who is a name you know, I'm sure, and a lot of other people may recognize. Mead was the, uh, I guess, the sponsor of his contract or his grant to experiment on these laser lightcraft out at White Sands. And he and Mead later on, had a, after they retired, had an adventure of their own. But, of course, Franklin Mead at the Air Force Research Lab is also a name that comes up when it with uh, some of the papers that were written by Eric Davis, um, who works with Hal Putoff at Earth Tech and the Austin Institute for Advanced Studies and whatnot. So Mead's an interesting guy I have never met. I'd like to meet him. I bet he has some stories he could tell. But my point is never my the reason I finally wrote the book was not only because I thought it was information that how long do I sit and say nothing before I can't hold my head up to the friends of mine who have been working on this for years who would look at me and say, you knew this all this time and you didn't say anything to us about it? You never told us? And at some point it was like, before I published the book, I finally I finally did uh, write to Mirabeau again. And don't get me wrong, I like the guy. I can understand why he would be hesitant to talk to me. But even I told him at the time, you know, when we finally spoke on the phone uh, shortly, and I told him, look, I'm just... I'm trying to just front for Ray. You know, Ray deserves some credit. And um, and I think, you know, maybe at some point it's time to just come out and say so. I would have honestly thought that in the atmosphere we're in now, with the to the stars, with the Bigelow Aerospace, with the Pentagon study, with all of this, now we have this company that you can buy shares into that's talking about looking at this whole UFO phenomenon in a way that we might glean some technological advantages from it, that this would be the right time, you know, to just come out and Mirabeau come out and say look at this I've proven that there is technology to be learned and ideas to be learned from it what Ray got on film I don't I don't I don't see how that could have come from anywhere local let's just put it that way um, it's way ahead of and you know, there's more things to be seen even in the film than just what I've described but but needless to say my whole purpose in right using those two films was because at the time, this was, of course, before all of these other revelations have come out, I thought, look, this pretty well shows that there is interest, if only from the Air Force, through the Air Force Research Lab, there's interest in all of this. There are, you know, Paul Benowitz did not get his you know, a grant, but obviously he filmed something that was coming and going right there off the grounds at the Manzanos. That certainly doesn't look to have been experimental vehicles to me because they were coming and going and sitting there for hours and flying off before dawn and you know, that sort of thing. So I don't know who was flying those things, but um, but the fact that the both films had, you know, the people who were the central characters seemed to have had some offers through the Air Force Research Lab or Air Force Weapons Lab for grants. You know, are they, is the grant to get, you know, you, what was it, uh, Lyndon Johnson that said better, better to have your enemies on the inside pissing out than the outside pissing in. You know, <laughs> so would you be better off just bringing these people into the, into the fold, so to speak, and help help them help you and back and forth than to have them going rogue or running random out there. I'm afraid maybe that was... Yeah, but he, he was apparently just shooting film, right? He wasn't speculating on what those things might be except 
possibly uh, what he said were uh, alien craft being uh, tested at Kirtland. Um, yeah, you were referring to Paul. Paul yes, Dinowitz. Paul. Sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, and in fact, um, you could say that, and from what I've read and what he said, it wasn't that initially, well, I, you know, I don't know. Let's, with all the things that he was doing and that were going on at the time around the area, you know, the Dulce and some of the stuff that we talked, we both talked about and that we showed at, uh, in Santa Fe, it's pretty clear to me that Paul definitely was seeing something up there. What it was, I don't know, but some of it was really apparently very unusual. And if his son was with him the one time, then it's not just Paul seeing something and imagining. But I do believe his imagination was going out into areas that were really out there as far as the ideas of, you know, can you communicate with them mentally? Is there something else going on? But needless to say, he came back to Albuquerque and it was, I guess it was heading towards Christmas. So maybe he wasn't planning on another trip up there anytime soon. And his wife mentioned having heard something that sounded like it was over their house. And that's why he got up on the roof in Albuquerque. I guess, you know, you're stuck for the holidays anyway, and it's snowing and it's 19 degrees and yeah, you're not going to leave town. So, but if there's something out and, you know, if you think there's something maybe flying around, so he ends up up on his roof and I'm sure he was freezing up there, but he's up on his roof and somehow, I don't know if you want to call it good luck or bad luck, but somehow he was there at this right moment where I'm sure nobody expected him to be. And he saw these lights down way out there that he had not seen before. And as he began to watch them, finally, when he saw them jump up off the ground, you know, hover at about 300, 400 feet and then shoot off around the end of the mountain. Whoa. Well, by this time he had camera equipment that he could set up. And if I'm, if I recall correctly, he had a Hasselblad camera with a 250 millimeter lens on it. He had some type of Japanese camera, um, film camera. He had another camera that was mounted on a telescope. So he was loaded for bear on his yeah. roof when he yeah. got up. I there. think he also had a 16 millimeter and or an eight millimeter movie uh, camera. There, too. We go. there you go. So the point was by now he was ready to go. So he had he eventually got all this set up on his roof. And and it's not clear to me whether it was every consecutive night or whether he would be up there and not see something. And then the next night something would happen. But it seemed like um, at least I, I was able to document it, I think, at least three or four occasions when he saw these objects coming and going. And on at least two of them, apparently his wife was up there with him because he writes that one time she was up there and he says, hey, watch all this. And they saw some what they thought was a security guard lights way off in the distance driving by and didn't know what to think of that. But another time, by the time he had watched these things depart, he kind of began to develop a, a clue, you know, a sense of this certain some type of a flash would occur underneath these objects and suddenly they would burst into these blue halos and brighten up and shoot up. And when he saw that flash, one time he describes being able to tell his wife, you know, okay, get ready. And within like a few seconds, five, 10 seconds, boom, they'd all take off simultaneously and shoot off around the end of the mountain. So he got film of all of this. And although I'd loved, you know, I have actually got, and this, this was in 1979 and my, my timeline was, mid to late 1979, and yours is early 1979, which we can get into. I had the reasons that I have for thinking. It was probably around the 16th to the 20th of December 79 are this. 
He went up there near the end of November because he said he wanted to get up and back before the first snows fell. He had already been up there at the end of October, so I knew about when, okay, if he went back a few weeks later. Oh, you mean up to Dulcie? Yeah, he had been up to Dulcie, and he was making, he made his last trip up by himself before the snows fell. Yeah. So he's coming back. I knew he'd been up. The point I'm trying to make with people is he was interested in visiting and seeing things and taking pictures in Dulcie way before I said the Air Force flew him up there. This was on his own. His yes. own uh, interest, basically because he knew Gabe Valdez. Yes. Actually, yeah. just, before, just before we went on, I was looking through the stack of material I've got, and I found the pages that list all the names of the people who attended the Catamulation Conference yes. in April of 1979. Mm-hmm. And the last person on the last page is Paul Benowitz, listed as a field investigator for APRO. So I knew he'd gone up there. He'd been there, was interested. That's how he met Gabe Valdez. And that's really more or less when he... His interest in the Dulce area sparked. To that point, I, I've seen and heard nothing since that he was doing anything down near Albuquerque. I mean, that's where he lived and his job was, but he was driving back and forth all this way to Dulce because all of this other stuff had been going on yeah, up there. So this is way before talking to the Air Force or filming stuff on his roof or anything. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I have not, there was no, not one indication of anything he ever said to me or that he's written that he had called the Air Force about anything. He was just going up to Dulce and doing his own thing, you know, filming and up there and what whatnot. Then one night, or in, on after his last trip, which best I got was sometime near the end of November, maybe the first little part of December, he came back, and his wife told him about the dog had had waked her up the night before, real early barking, and she'd heard something that sounded like a buzzing buzz saw or whatnot that seemed to be coming from over their house in uh, the four hills area of albuquerque and that paul wrote he didn't want to scare her he didn't want to say so he didn't really say anything to her about it but he began to wonder if all the attention he'd been paying to whatever was going on up in dulce maybe whatever he was paying attention to was now paying attention to him and somehow had tr- traced him back yeah it was a reach it was it was it was a reach <laughs> but needless to say under the circumstances at the time and his interest with everything else that was going on and some very peculiar ideas, the frame of mind he had at the time, you can see that it, it does make some crazy seeming kind of sense that he ends up on his roof in Albuquerque. And he made the comment that a couple of the time, some of the days he was up there, it was 19 degrees and yeah. there was no moon out. Yeah. So I just went and looked at an almanac on the, online and looked for the days when the temperatures we're down at 19 degrees when there would have been no moon. And right around the middle of December is the time period when he's talking. Now, he, I have the letter of the document that Edwards states that the first contact with Paul Benowitz was January. And this is Ernest and, Edwards, the head of security at Kirtland at the time. Yeah, the security police that guarded inside the Manzano Mountain, the perimeter, whatnot. Right. But anyway, so I knew at some point Paul would have to get the film processed and then he'd have to look at it and whatever he was doing before he finally would decide to call the air force and looking at the temperatures and when the moon was out that's why i've i can't prove it you know but i believe it's reasonable that it was around the middle of december it's the only time i found no moon at those the times when he was out there which often was midnight to 3 a.m that sort of thing right and 19 degrees whatnot so he's out on his roof, he sees these objects, he gets these films of them, and somewhere in January, he decides, 
there was never any sign from anybody at the base, no alarms going off, nobody shooting, nothing, that, so as far as he knew, maybe they have no idea these things were coming and going. Now, frankly, I don't recall any mention, and I never have seen any mention, that he was getting these things and seeing these objects all this time, all the way into January. The best I've found is there must have been a time when he saw these things, and I would not at all be surprised if he began to go up on his roof and look and see what else was there, maybe even in the daytime. By that time, you know, every little odd thing might have become some another part of the puzzle in his mind. I don't, I don't know. All I know for sure is at some point he decides to call the Air Force and tell them he's seen these objects. Maybe they don't know they're there. He's filmed them. And if it's maybe a threat to the Air Force or to the Manzano area, he's doing his duty and calling the Air Force and telling them that he's got these films of these objects coming and going from the Manzano area. Now, here's the issue. And I talked to, I had a friend who had been in Navy and done some intelligence work in the Navy who just kind of <laughs> made me think, I said, you know, what's really got me was, hmm. if he called the Air Force in January, there's no documents we've ever seen. It seems like they did nothing all the way up until maybe April, or May. Even that's not the first document the Air Force released. But at least I, you know, Edwards is saying that he had talked to Paul in this time and make some comment about things that were happening in April or May. So, you know, Edwards had already met Paul and gone talk to him. And yeah, Edwards yeah. stated, I mean, Tommy Bland and I went out to Albuquerque one time and actually met Ernest Edwards. And he met us at a restaurant and we talked yeah. about this kind of thing. And he always spoke very highly of Paul. I mean, he never, never indicated that he thought Paul was off his rocker or whatnot. He also spoke very highly of, of Doty. And um, and I have no doubt these are guys are professionals. I mean, I really don't. Even even though later on, I mean, I was able to show and prove to myself, Edwards knew he was not giving us the correct timeline when we first met him, because right. the one of the first conversations I have with him, and I've got it on tape, I ask him, "Well, when did you first talk to Paul?" And he says, "Oh, October, somewhere in there." But I find out that within a month or so, and I think it was a month before that. And this is October of 1980? 80, of yeah. 1980. Right. He alludes, to, he told me on tape when I first, but I first talked to Edwards in 85. Don't right. get me wrong. Yeah. It was after all this, I kind of started getting into this. So he tells me he first talked to Paul in October, and I don't know why it didn't, I didn't put two and two together at the time. But then eventually, after one of the things Paul sent to me was this document that Edwards had written up about a meeting he had with two guys. Apparently, Paul had been in touch with Senator Pete Domenici's office. By 1985, he's calling a lot of people. Right, right. And eventually, some representatives, uh, Pete Domenici's office, apparently contacted some people from Sandia National Laboratories, and two men from Sandia Labs went to talk to Edwards. I believe Edwards had been on tour of duty and been gone for a while and was now back. And I think the same thing with Doty. They'd gone on tour of duty and come back. So when I first talked to Edwards, he was back there. But within a month or so of him telling me that first time he talked to Paul was in October, he has a meeting with these guys from Sandy National Labs in which he, and actually I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. I'm holding it in my hand, this document, briefing transcript, log entry, Lieutenant Colonel Edwards, Vice Commander of Air Force Security, had a meeting with Dr. Mr. Stone and Ortega from Sandy Labs. The number one item listed, number one, First contact, January 1980, 
Paul calls me at work. Well, so Paul called him in January. He had to have had the films made before then. But then why was there no documentation indicating, and we've never seen, I've never seen any, not one document indicating anybody actually spoke to Paul until the Kirtland documents come out in June, July, and August. And even there, they don't really state that they had first heard of Paul in that. They just mentioned Paul as having been interested in this yeah. phenomenon for a long time. According to their timeline, they didn't even hear about any of this until probably in the fall and then called him into the office in, uh, in uh, November of 1980, as I indicated in Project Beta. Right. And but what you're saying is that th- this contact had gone on for probably eight or nine or ten months before that. Oh yeah, and they Paul, didn't. They wanted to make it look like it had only started in late uh, 1980. That apparently is the case, because even when he when he writes right here, Paul calls me at work and tells me he wants to talk to me about the landings in quotes, the landings on the mountain. But this is a telling point to me. Now keep in mind, this is Edwards talking to the Sandia Lab guys in 1985, mm-hmm. October 31st, 1985. He says Paul wanted to talk to him about the landings on the mountain and in Coyote Canyon. Paul had not filmed anything in Coyote Canyon. You can't even see Coyote Canyon from Paul's house. It's on the opposite side of the mountains. He wouldn't even have known it existed, probably. Unless he, through some contract with the Air Force, they might have told him about it. Who knows? Maybe you can look at a map and see... But you can't see it from there. It's like right. we talked about the uh, the Starfire optical range. It's another two and a half miles or three miles on the other side of the mountains. You can't even see it from Paul's house. Right. So for Edwards to tell them that he called them and wanted to talk about the landings on the mountain and in Coyote Canyon makes me wonder whether he's just planting the idea that all the curtain document material, the helicopter mechanics, the guards, things that were supposedly handi- happening in Coyote, that Paul's all a part of all of that. Which is, like you were saying, it makes it look like it all was kind of tied together. Here's the point. He says, I showed them photos Paul gave me of lights in Coyote. Paul didn't have any pictures of lights in Coyote. Like I said, you can't even see Coyote from Paul's roof. Yeah. But he talks about, I went out on, I arranged to meet Paul, went to his house, observed his equipment, went out on deck and observed moving and stationary lights. Now, when we were there talking to him, he did tell us that, yes, he had eventually gone to Paul's house and been out on his deck, and Paul would say, look out there, and he was telling us, I'd call my men on the mountain and say, look that direction, can you see a light out there? No, maybe they couldn't. Now, of course, now that I realize that he's telling me that they, for he first met Paul in October, and now he's trying to do probably the same thing he was doing with these guys, Mur- mush it all together, create a big yeah. smoke thing where it all looks like it's you know, partly all tied together. What's curious also, though, is he states, I discussed the involvement by Rick Doty of AFOSI. Brief, little detail, only that he was able to get some info into official channels. He doesn't really go into Richard Doty. My point in all this is, it's inconceivable to me that when Paul first called Ernest Edwards, and Edwards states even in this, that he went up to Paul's house. When he first called Ernest Edwards, it was what I was told was Edwards put him in touch with Richard Doty his AFOSI guy. So maybe Edwards went up and saw what Paul had and ooh, decided better call Doty. But I can't see them waiting months and months to do it. It would have been within a day or two they would have gone up there. You so, know, somebody would have gone yeah. to talk to Paul 
And even Doty has talked, I think, at one point that he went and met Paul at his office right across the street from, you know, from Kirtland. Yeah. So why are there no documents attesting to any of this meeting Paul, talking to Paul, going up to us, nothing going up the ladder, no letters sent, you know, sent, no HQCR 44 reports or whatnot about Paul calling them about these things that he had filmed. Nothing. All you've got is dead silence in the first indication that I've seen of anything coming out of Kirtland that may directly or indirectly even relate to this is the Wetzel letter that was sent to APRO, which had Doty's name in it. Yeah, and spelled bait, wrong, but yeah. Was, yeah, it was accordingly bait, whatever. But there's nothing to ever indicate, a, no documents I've seen, to show that they had heard of Paul until I got this, that they had known of Paul and met him, and for some reason, when I asked the friend I had met, I said, I just can't understand why it looks like nobody did anything. They met Paul, nothing happened for, you know, till April, May, whenever it, you yeah, know, well, Hansen, not, you know, not, not that anybody like you is able to find in the record, except for that indication that maybe Edwards knew what was going on before. See, when I read this, the implication is, and I think you make the implication in the book, is that um, his... Uh, ideas about it his his direction and the direction he was going with it was being influenced possibly way back in early 1980 and not in late 1980 or uh, 80 when was it that Myrna Hansen was showed up at I think it was uh May 5th or 7th one of those dates I've heard but it was by right, April beginning right, of May right right of 1980 and your your uh implication I think here tell me if I'm wrong is that um, maybe he was having help in having his his uh, ideas and 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 uh, and direction he was going influenced before even the first meeting with uh, now I can't think of his name Leo Sprinkle when he he said that uh, Paul seemed kind of you know unstable at first and then a month later he seemed horribly unstable and that was by June I believe or April or May or June of 1980 so the I keep telling people look he was already having problems with what was real and what was not and making and making uh leaps of logic based on uh small amounts of information uh, before he even talked to the Air Force. But your idea was, look, he was talking to the Air Force way back you know, at the beginning of that year. Uh, yeah, I, and I, who knows what they were telling him. I still believe that Paul probably had the wherewithal to try to um, make up uh, incredible stories based on little bits of information. But um, the, 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 the bombshell here is that maybe they were talking to him eight, nine, ten months before they said they were. Yeah, my, I, I tend to agree with you, if only because... I just can't see any other way to state it than some of the things that Paul apparently was thinking and testing in the middle to the end of 1979 and Dulcie and whatnot do seem to suggest he was willing to entertain some really out-of-the-box ideas about aliens and whatever else. So for some reason, his mindset was willing to go there. And yeah. when, he got these, when he got the films from the roof in Albuquerque, I think in his mind, he added the pictures to this puzzle that he had, and he believed maybe something else was going on. I can't prove that. I don't know what he thought. Right. Because every time I talk to him, and, and you know anybody who's ever spoken to someone who's really convincing, you can sound totally, you know, matter of fact about mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And and but the idea is seriously, you know, you're thinking this is what's going on. But he calls the Air Force, and and I guess I would say, 
I could certainly understand. At least when I talked to him by 1985, he had come up with this whole scenario that he now had worked on the, com- the computer s- stuff, the signals. He thought he was communicating with these aliens and they were beaming things to him. And maybe all of this was just now he had locked these pieces together. There was no getting them apart in his mind. Right. So he created this scenario that involved all of this. And maybe he did, maybe he never did um, stop to think, well, I just saw these things that are coming off of the Manzanos. I don't have any reason to absolutely believe they're alien. And the fact that they're down there, nobody's shooting at them, makes you think maybe they're supposed to be there. I'm not. I'm not supposed to be here looking at all this. I don't see that he ever thought that way, although there were plenty of times that I talked to him and I got the impression that, yeah, he's frustrated when I ask questions. And, you know, he never yelled. He never got angry. He never went wacko crazy. And he always seemed very calm and matter of fact about it. Mm-hmm. But but it was clear to me from some of the things and you were, you know, that I even things that I read in uh in Santa Fe, that he was ready to entertain some way out there ideas of, is it alien intelligence? Are they whatever? So when he got these films in Albuquerque, I have the feeling that, and there were some things that I read that seemed to suggest eventually he really wasn't sure. I actually had transcribed the part of it. I wish I could find it. I'd read it to you right now. Some material that he had told me at one time that he was confused the way the Air Force was reacting. It's like they're not reacting. He said, I, you know, maybe they're trained not to react. But it gave you the impression that he felt like, why aren't they reacting in some way to the things he's telling them? And I believe at this point, he begins to go, the way I put it was, and <laughs> no pun intended, off the reservation, contacting some guy at Los Alamos, a scientist there, writing to the White House. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling that as long as he stayed local and they felt they could just kind of diffuse him, then maybe it would have been just a local operation. You know, maybe Doty or whoever else thought they could just ride shotgun on Paul and eventually it would go away. But when he starts writing and calling other people and other people are coming to visit, and even Edwards had mentioned to uh, in this meeting that he had with these guys, he talked about um, explaining Paul's use of linear recorders, showed them copies of strips dated 27th of May, 1980. Yeah, of, of uh, strips of data showing uh, fluctuations in magnetic fields that he thought yeah. he was picking up. Well, he was picking up. He just did, he thought it was coming from some sort of alien craft thing, but exactly. I'm exactly. sure they knew it was something else. All of this happening in 1980, and in on June 1st, night of visit by John Warren, LASL. I think that's Los Alamos Labs. Um, and June 6th, the day of call to the White House. So my thinking is Paul has decided he's going to take matters into his own hand and just start calling out. But but there's not one document before this. And my feeling now, and I, I'm feeling it fits, the, logically it fits the way things went, that the idea was if Paul won't be quiet and he's going to be calling people and saying things, Let's just make sure we give him some of the craziest stuff, whatever. I think even Bill had said one point, stuff him full of as much stuff as he can take to where when he opens his mouth, he's going to talk the craziest stuff and people will, thank you, click, hang up, or will at least write him off. So if you cannot stop the guy from talking and he's willing to go way over the, out the edge of the box, then let's just push him over. So he's going to say anything that nobody will believe. I have a feeling, because most people who think of Paul these days, 
equate it with a lot of the Myrna Hansen kind of thing. And as I mentioned in Santa Fe, it was coincidental that Myrna Hansen's story was very similar to the story of another girl Leo Sprinkle had been talking to within a month or two before this. But she begins to pepper it with, and she gets to Paul through Gabe Valdez. And uh, according to you know what Greg mentioned, Greg Valdez mentioned that uh, Gabe wasn't. Gabe kind of suspected she might have been a part of this whole Doty operation. So I I wonder whether she was brought to Paul in such a way hmm. that she would reinforce whatever he was willing to believe. Oh, Sprinkle would come in and under hypnosis if she was. Anybody who knows hypnosis knows. You can't guarantee the person really is under hypnosis um, to a great extent, especially someone who maybe knows how to avoid it. Um, there was a great story about the Israelis trying to get rid of Palestine. <laughs> Think of they'd hypnotized a guy, you know, Manchurian candidate. And as soon as he had the gun and was across the river, he turns around and gives him the finger and goes and immediately reports because he was never really hypnotized. Yeah. I, my point is there's no way to know. I don't know what the situation is, but it seems to me that a lot of what eventually Paul would – you know, the idea of aliens and beaming signals at you and you better watch out for the and the attack victims and put tinfoil all over everything, that a lot of that stuff may very well have been provided to him to reinforce what he was thinking already. And I wish he was I wish he had not thought all that, but it sounds like he did have a predisposition to go there. Right. And they just they just fed it or whoever just fed it. Mm-hmm. But it's notable, I think, that after June when he calls the White House, when he's suddenly starting to go outside of Albuquerque and contacting people in different places, suddenly the Wetzel letter shows up to APRO in July. And then right after this, you have all these other documents that seemingly came out. But I have to wonder, how come we have all these Kirtland documents from all this June, July, November stuff, but there's not one document even saying, got a call from Paul Benowitz, except for this thing that Edwards gave to Paul, which I believe had to be accurate because Paul could have called him on it. Yeah. So Edwards had to make sure if Paul's going to see this because Paul would want to know that the guys from, you know, that Domenici's office sent somebody from Sandia National Labs. And so Edwards gives this to Paul and the dates better be accurate or Paul would recognize, you know, the, the, the gig was up. The gig was up. So needless to say, this one states clearly that it was January of 1980. But why do we have nothing else except when you get to the middle of 1980? Then you have all these other documents that apparently – FOSI kept, but we don't have any of the other ones that would suggest when Paul actually called, because I guarantee you Edwards and Doty would have come back, typed up something about their visit with Paul or what they'd said, and sent it up the ladder somewhere. Yeah, but you're, we're never going to see that. Yeah, we're probably never going to see that at this point anyway, if it still I, exists. I, I actually wanted to make it – the other thing that um, that interested me and made me uh, – uh, want to have you on the show finally was that I don't think we got exactly into your comparison of um, these uh, laser uh, propulsed um, objects and what Paul was filming because when I did the book I just said well he saw some weird things that were flying that they were probably testing they probably weren't UFOs but um, according to your research it connects directly into Mirabeau's stuff and Ray's films. Don't Let me clarify, because I think we talked about this, and I realized that maybe I need to clarify it if I do another, if I release another version of the book. Because You should. The only connection that I know of between Mirabeau and Ray's film, uh, excuse me, between Mirabeau and Ray's film and Paul Benowitz is 
this apparent interest shown by the Air Force Research Lab in both guys and what they had. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that what Paul was seeing over the Manzanos and what he got on film and that got him in trouble at that point necessarily had anything to do with Mirabeau. The time frame Paul had was... Oh, no, no. I didn't think it was with with Mirabeau, but that type of propulsion and testing of that propulsion. Okay. Because there were a lot of... There were also a lot of uh, laser uh, testing and uh, projects going on at Kirtland at the time. And to my mind, when you showed this and explained the colors and and what had been exhibited in the films and what you had seen from them from the stills matched up with some sort of laser propulsion testing. Okay, and in fact, yes, I guess to, to that extent you're correct because Kirtland was the home of the Directed Energy Directorate. Mm-hmm. And the Directed Energy, at the time, of course, you had a lot of things going on with the Starfire Optical Range, laser you know, ranging and in, in refocusing the lasers so that you would not only be able to get good pictures of satellites out in space if you wanted to t- maybe determine whose they were, but I have to presume if you can focus a laser beam out there above the atmosphere, you could pretty well fry a satellite with it. And since we were talking directed energy, and I think one of the... Uh, I think Starfire actually boasts that they do fry satellites at this point. I believe it. <laughs> yeah. That seems to me the whole point, the whole mission of, uh, of the military is not just increasing you know, telescopes, you know, the, the res- resolution of telescopes. It's some type of defense or whatnot. But needless to say, yeah. Kirtland was the home of the Directed Energy Directorate, and in that way, and it's curious you to, to bring this up now, because when you realize that Franklin Meade, who was, I suppose you'd say, the sponsor of Mirabeau's uh, little lightcraft project, the, the grant that Mirabeau got with the Air Force Research Lab's Propulsion Directorate, that Franklin Meade now is on some of the papers written by Eric Davis um, dealing with Directed Energy. So it may have been that because one of the places that I read and I did mention it in the book was, I think, a statement that described Franklin Meade as the head of the Air Force's exotic sciences division. Hmm. Like that. That's a yeah, really innocuous but mysterious yeah. sounding name. Right. And from what I could gather and what I recall, of course, a lot of these people attend these breakthrough propulsion physics conferences. You know, there were times, and I cite some of these in the book, that you'd see there's this conference, and you know Mirabeau's going to be there, but Eric Davis is actually overseeing one aspect of it, and Franklin Meade is there doing some other stuff. So I, I just have to assume that at some point all of these people have met each other, which is a good thing, I think. It's a good thing. Let them, you know, whatever. And I don't want anybody to get the impression that I have anything against. These are brilliant people. They're the right kind of people you would want looking at this information. I just wish they could do it in a more open manner. I guess maybe I sound a little bit like Lou Elizondo in that case. You know, you wish you could do this in a more open atmosphere where people could come out and talk freely about it and, and see this kind of thing and not feel that they have to watch out for their career. You know, it's actually one of the things that I have suggested to Ray if he invites people to come look at it, especially people with credentials. Don't just invite them one at a time. Invite two or three of them together. Let them sit there and feel safety in numbers. They can ask questions. They can see and respond to what the other guy's saying. Yeah, they can walk and outside they, during a break and talk about this privately and all that. And then that, Exactly. That. When they leave, they can go home in the car riding along and talk about what the heck did they see and what they thought. And they feel much more secure in their own opinions because they've been able to bounce them off of each other. 
nobody's going home afraid to talk because the other guy didn't see what any of it. So how would he know? But in this particular case, you know, I it, it's interesting to me that you do have these names appear that pop up in in you know, these places. You've got me, Mirabeau, Davis, how other people. And of course, that's a whole other story when you get back to talking about Bigelow Aerospace and whatnot. But um, but it, it may very well be that the only remaining thing that's hopefully of real consequence in you know in what I've written is that uh, that there are these images of what Paul got. And yes, the directed energy director was there. Yes, you've got these names that all come up together. If you look at some of the images that I was able to get from what Paul provided and go and enhance them and bring out some of what's happening around these vehicles, there is some some serious, some kind of propulsion going on. I don't know whether it's electromagnetic fields, but you get the impression that there's a lot of energetic um, whatnot going on around these vehicles that Paul saw. And I, and obviously he could, you know, he could film them at night with his camera equipment from two miles away. They must've been putting out an exorbitant amount of light when they were shining brightly enough for him to actually get them on film, you know, with, with his equipment. Um, it's not easy with night films of little lights way off in the distance. Usually you just get a blurb. Yeah. But, um, if anything, but the point you just is, get a little point of light. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at it and, and as I was trying to demonstrate in, uh, in the images that I showed in Santa Fe and, and in the book, you know, Paul in the material he's got me by me, he had drawn out a lot of this. He sketched out the elliptical shape, you know, where he said the object is elliptical. You can see the little spark or whatever you want to call it, that little energetic blue looking spark that seemed to be something he, he referred to as a, as a result of translating movements, like some kind of energetic discharge causes this little thing. that looks like a static spark in the atmosphere or, or on the ground as it's leaving. Um, and all of this is so easily visible, but you can get down into some of those pictures and get to where you're looking at the brightest points and see the elliptical shape of something down in there. And it's very clear that what this is is not a helicopter. I mean, it's not a plane with Christmas lights all around it. This is something that's extremely bright that's coming and going over several nights from the area of the Manzanos. And it really wasn't until the last few days because I'd always been, and I think I said this in the book, you know, I never was able to really convince myself to be more on one side of the fence than the other, whether were these objects that we owned and we were piloting them, things we may have built, or were these whoever they, in quotes, might be permitted to come into this area because obviously Paul could see them and the way they flew in there was in and out fast. I mean, get in in five seconds, down, lights out. And nobody's going to start shooting at them. So somehow it seems more reasonable to conclude that they were supposed to be there and were flying in and out as quickly as they could and hoping that nobody would see them in the wintertime. Who's going to be on the roof at right. night? Right. But there were some. Hence the first line in Project Beta. No one goes out in the New Mexico winter. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. You know, it's, it's, this is funny to say, but the only people that I can think of that I've ever heard of who would lay out there in the freezing weather. One is Paul, and the other is Ray Stanford, who <laughs> used to talk about when he had uh, Project Starlight going on down here in Austin years ago, how sometimes they'd be out there sleeping in, you know, out at night and frost and all that. But you know what? Maybe it's that determination that gets some people to, to be successful and to get some of this stuff, and other people don't. Yeah. You, know, you get cold, and you think, oh, I'll just come back out later. 
I, I don't know. It's just a funny story when I thought about that. But there was some reason I can't recall right now. But in the last few days, I was talking to my friend Tom and we were mulling over a lot of this stuff. And it just something convinces me more so now that what Paul filmed, they're disc shaped vehicles. They are not helicopters. They're operating with some kind of whatever the energy source propulsion, whatever is going on. And the color changes in the lighting patterns, you can clearly see, I think, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, somebody knew what they were looking Some expert knew what he was looking at, might be able to deduce some things from these pictures. But something tells me these were things that we have. I don't know who's piloting them, where we got the technology. Yeah. But something tells me these were things that we have either taken ownership of or we actually built them. And it's significant that you had four of them, not just one object. And these are these are four when uh, Paul Benoits was filming them. Yes, four of these things. Three smaller ones he estimated about eighteen feet, and the largest one maybe twice that size, thirty-six feet. But um, and you can clearly see. I think there's in some of the frames you get. You can clearly see three three objects in you know in the frame, so you know that they're there. And, yeah. um, and you've, and you've it, done some um, actually uh, triangulation and angular. Uh, uh, um, analysis about you know how big the thing was in the frame what what the telephoto lens was how far away paul was from it and and figured out the sizes like that yeah i think i think and it was paul that did that i mean it's paul who gave those estimates of sizes because from where he was on his roof you know he knew how far down the mountains went and he knew where the things were as far as where he was pointing his equipment and filming them and he estimated okay that'd be about two miles away and if he knew his camera had a six degree lens on it then he's getting a swath of you know, right. area that he's able to film, and based on the size of the objects in the yeah. frame of a six-degree, so he's the one who came up with that estimate. Oh, okay, okay. Of the sizes, yeah. I mean, I just drew it out. I think in my book, I kind of showed an aerial view and where the line would be to give you an idea of approximately where these things would have would have been coming down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, it's go ahead. I'm sorry. That's okay. I have a a a, a feeler slash comment slash question, which is interesting. I think you might find interesting. Uh, uh, one of the people on the on the show chat on the Roddy Mysterioso page says, "I think Mirabeau's flying saucers in quotes are supposed to use magneto hydrodynamic hydrodynamic yeah hydrodynamic propulsion to get to space, pushing the air around them to achieve propulsion." I think Ray Stanford's model for UFOs is the same, but I'm not sure of TTSA's and Putoff's model. I, I think Ray's model is the same. I'm not sure as that hydrodynamic propulsion of pushing the air. Um, but put off in TTSA's model has nothing to do with this. They postulate space is distorted around the craft in a kind of anti-gravity. You know, it's one of the points that I do want to make sure I emphasize about Ray's images in his film when he talks about the fact that the next to last object slowed down mm-hmm. to wait for the last one to catch up. My point is, even though they may have been beaming something out front and i defer to ray on the details even though they may have been using some kind of energy directed energy or a beam compressed out front to maneuver the atmosphere out of the way to make it easier to fly because you have no drag that apparently wasn't what was required moving forward wasn't required to keep them aloft so there seems to me to have to have been some other technology that's used to whether you want to call it anti-gravity or to provide lift or whatever right Something else that is some other means, and as far as I'm, as far as I'm concerned. So, so thank you, guest one forty-five. That's a that's a very uh, uh, incisive comment. Yeah. So as far as as far as I'm concerned, it may be that there are two things going on. One is some type of 
warping of space and time to seemingly appear in one place and and instantly appear somewhere else to seem to move at that rapid speed. Mm -hmm. But maybe that's maybe that's not what's actually creating the quote unquote anti-gravity effect, the ability to shift and just float. Maybe there's something other dealing with the Earth's magnetic field or something else that allows them to effectively have no weight. And so they don't really have the effects of inertia that you would see. But once you're just floating and you don't have well, any... Yeah, or have no still. inertia. Weight, weight and inertia is a little different, I think. Well, well whatever the well, point weight's is. Weight's a, 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 a... What? Yeah, exactly. A mass. Thank you. A mass. Yeah. I mean, I, believe me, I'm not a physicist to that extent. I've read... Me but, either. So if I'm wrong on some of these points, I defer to the experts. But I don't know. You know, the idea seems to me that it may be that what's allowing them to seemingly float, to appear to be able to defy gravity... Maybe some process we've not discovered yet, but once you're able to do that, then you just simply warp space time. And as far as you looking at it or seeing it on film, like a Fravor implied about the Tic Tac, you know, this is gone so fast it makes your head spin. Yeah. So maybe there's something more to it and it's not all, you know, all one requirement. But I do I do agree with the your, your writer who said that uh, Mirabeau's idea with the electromagnetism to get the atmosphere or the air to flow around and potentially, and that was one of the points that I think it was Kevin Kramer that brought up, which is by maneuvering the atmosphere around your vehicle and collapsing it behind it, you actually are adding to your you know, propulsion. You're increasing the amount of force drive forward like, a, like a, a surfer who when the wave builds behind him, he slides forward and moves. So it all kind of goes together and works in a way to, uh, to increase the forward momentum that you get by being able to manipulate the uh, the atmosphere to close behind you as you're flying through this low density tunnel or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I defer to the experts on that. I mean, yeah, uh, my friend uh, Adam Go Rightly uh, uh, also commented. He said he'd like to hear uh, Chris Lambright's thoughts about um, taking random photos of the sky and developed UFOs appeared. I think he's talking about uh, Paul uh, going up to Dulcie and getting those pictures of those. Uh, objects and strange things that look at rainbows uh, on his film um, when he didn't actually see them when he was taking the pictures. And this is uh, pre pre um, Project Beta Dulce activity. Yeah. Well, um, as far as <laughs> believe me, I am I am willing to entertain and talk about some out there ideas myself. So as far as the possibilities of taking just if if he was meaning random photos of the sky. And to see what shows up, um, you know, I've read some interesting articles about these kinds of things, and I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I'm not saying that you necessarily have to be able to see something for the camera to get it. You right. Know, it may be possible. Now, as far as what Paul was filming and these random streaks of light, that's a tough one to me because not only did he get the first one, the most, the one that seems to be the most widely known, which is the one over here. Uh, uh, Navajo River Canyon and the streaking lights, very bright. It looks almost like you could see some shape to it. But then he's got the other image that was taken somewhere else that seems to show this swooping little same similar kind of streak and this prismatic effect. Why you would get that? I mean, to me, if you get a Hasselblad and it's getting these random <laughs> reflections, and they don't appear to me to be lens flares or any kind of reflection because the sun is not in front. The sun's off 
behind to the left somewhere like this. Right. They, but then they're goes, apparently ah. something that was picked up by the camera at a high, at a high um, uh, uh, shutter speed. So, yeah, something got into the lens and caused this, you know, on film, you know, caused it on film. But he goes back, and uh, I think it was the last trip he took, which was the November one that I mentioned, and goes back and puts the camera right into almost the same general area and takes a picture and gets another similar odd-looking streak, not identical to the first one, but some other odd-looking streak. But you don't get those streaks in all the other pictures. This, these ones he's gotten that I can't explain. You know, but Paul seemed to think... And the reason that stunned... Or the reason surprising and a little difficult to me is he wasn't telling anybody else about this. was not... He hadn't called the Air Force yet, so you can't really say, oh, somebody's taking this film and creating these, you know, photoshopping something for him to see. He's getting these peculiar-looking images that he began to come up with these really out there ideas of how could they get in front of the, you know, the camera right at the time he's pressing the shutter. Wow. You know, I don't know. I can't, but needless to say, and I think you had suggested this, he obviously was really into this in 79 because of all the things that he thought were going on around Dulcie. So he was primed to, uh, to look into, you know, to believe in the whole idea of aliens or UFOs, or by that time, his own work, the film, the pictures he had taken in the Dulce area and Archelita, those images themselves were reinforcing in his mind that some of these things, you know, maybe there are other intelligences out there that somehow can, are aware or can manipulate space-time so they can get right there when he clicks the shutter. I, I, have, I, I don't even, <laughs> I can't even begin to imagine, you know, to explain any of that. But needless to say, that may have also put him in the mind state that when he got the pictures off his roof in Albuquerque, that he was tying them together. Well, I was up there seeing all of this. Now I'm down here and suddenly here it is. They must have followed me. It's all the same thing. Something along that line. And I don't I, I, I don't see that myself. But it may just have been because he was ready to believe it and was willing to believe it. And maybe I almost have no doubt by the time Edwards and Dodie talked to Paul the first time, he would have clued him in on what he thought was going on up around Dulce. And right. he may have already suggested to them, it's got to be all the same thing. They must have followed me down here. Now I've got these films. And at that point, hey, if that's what he wants to believe and he's willing to talk it up, let's just make sure he's got some doozies or make sure he's going to say this kind of thing to anybody who will he calls. Yeah. And that's So we can't shut him up. Let's just make sure... Nobody's necessarily going to ever pay attention long enough to find out about these films that he got on his roof, because all he's going to talk about is pragmatic aliens attacking you and put tinfoil around your windows, you know that sort of, that sort of thing. Yeah. But but he got something on film. None of that talk put anything on film. What he got on film from the Manzanos. That's what he called the Air Force about. So after when they got interested, my feeling is that's that's why. All of the other stuff is interesting. I don't know how to explain it, but those films that he got from his roof in Albuquerque and what he called the Air Force about to begin with, that put it, that put the hot potato in their lap. Yeah. And there was, you know, how to explain that, I don't know. Right. But needless to say. <laughs> you uh, also mentioned something. I, did you mention this in your talk? Probably not. Uh, maybe we were talking about... Um, John Lear's contact with Benowitz, like post nineteen eighty five, and what that might have been about. Uh, yeah, I I should preface this with saying, 
I wasn't there when John went to, to Paul's house. I wasn't there to listen to the conversations that they had. So I don't know what to think. I mean, I don't know what was said. But I had, you know, I'd been talking to Paul all this time. And I had already mentioned to Paul, you know, that I'd met John Lear because we had gone to the conference in Washington where John first showed up as a friend of Dale Gowdy. And that's where John stood up. And I think it was right at, in the question and answer session of Bill's speech. John stood up and said he knew some people who knew about MJ-12. And, of course, with a name like John Lear and that background, boom, you're a celebrity instantly. So that's when I first began to think, well, who is this guy that I'd never met before? But John's a terrific, friendly sort of guy. I mean, John's fun to hang out with and talk to. And, you know, so at that point, I didn't know anything. But needless to say, over time... You know, and at oh, one what, point, when was this conference where he said something about knowing about MJ12? What 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 was the time period of that? Um, eighty It was the conference was in Washington D.C. and we had gone there because Phil Class had challenged Dale Gowdy to, you know, about the Kirtland documents and some of the Project Aquarius, whatever else. Dale had said, no, they're not true, real documents. They're all fake. They're not. They can't have been from there. And he said, you want to come to the White House press conference? I'll pay for the room. You can come and present your material. And since I was the one who was doing a lot of this stuff at the time, Dale called me up and said, hey, you want to go do this? Take Phil Class up on it? And sure, Tom Bland had helped me, and we all three went. And so we went to have this little press conference on that Friday before the, the MUFON, I think it was the MUFON conference, was going to happen that, that weekend. And um, when Dale shows up, John Lear is with him. Now, all of this... Perfectly innocent. I mean, as far as I know, John you know, was was there on his own nickel and his own accord, and he was interested like all of us. And uh, but the point was, I got to know John there. We were friends for the next year or so. You know, he'd come to Dallas on occasion when he was doing things, and I'd pick him up, and he'd call me flying. And great guy, very friendly guy. We but we ended up taking a trip. There was a conference. Uh, it was just kind of a low-key, friendly conference. I think Tom Adams and Gary Massey and Dave Perkins put this thing on. They called it the Crestone Conference. And um, I got invited to go, and I was working for American Airlines at the time. So I was like, hey, I'll fly into Albuquerque. John said, I'll pick you up. He was going to drive. He drove there to Albuquerque. We got at the airport. He picked me up. He wanted to go to Socorro before we drove up to uh, southern Colorado with the, at the Crestone area. We drove down to Socorro. Yeah, which is like, we, what, hour and a half, couple hours south of... Not uh, far. Yeah, not yeah. that far, though. Oh, really? Yeah, but he had his truck. and Yeah, but you're right. It's like an hour and a little more south. We drove to Socorro, went down to the Leroyo, looked around, went over to Lonnie's house, sat and talked to Lonnie for a little bit. Ah. Uh, then, then we hoofed it back north. So we got all the way to this little conference that was just over the weekend, if I recall. Linda Howe was there. A um, number of other people were there. Tom, Gary... Kalani, you know, a guy from Hawaii was there. Anyway, oh, yeah. it was okay. Chris O'Brien and um, and Dave Perkins, too, I think. Yes, 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 yes. And so it was just, I, I guess maybe they had managed to kind of rent this little duplex kind of things where everybody had a joint little place to meet and there were rooms on the ends. And, and it was interesting and it was fun and it was pretty and, and it was cold. Believe me, it was freezing. Well, when we left there, Linda Howe rode back. I was going to go to the airport. I had to get back at 5 in the morning. John was driving, so we left like at midnight from southern Colorado. Drove all the way back. Linda Howe sitting in between us. And this was really one of the first chances that I had to talk to Linda Howe. 
where she was even describing having met Dodie at Kirtland and talking about how the way he had her sit in this chair with her back to a certain way and whatever. And she kind of felt like she maybe wondered if the chair was bugged. And later on, I had a conversation with Dodie where he even mentioned, well, two of my supervisors were listening. I'm like, were they in the room? And he goes, oh, well, one of them was outside. So Linda wasn't off. Her instincts were kind of on the button that she may have been meeting with Dodie, but there were some other people listening in on that. This is kind of right. where this she is when they showed her all these documents. Yeah. And there was, I, yeah. I think, supposedly there was a two way mirror and that they were filming her and all this. Yeah. Yeah. All, all of that kind of thing. Needless to say, though, they dropped me at the airport. And this is when my understanding Linda was going to do something. I don't know if she was going to go with John to Paul, but I believe this is when John was just going to go meet Paul. And no pun intended. Yes, I was a little leery about it because I <laughs> didn't know John that well. I mean, he was a friendly guy. But not being there, you know, I and I was very sensitive about Paul um, because we were kind of friends. I mean, he wrote me, called me on occasion. I have handwritten letters that he wrote. Mm-hmm. We had, I guess we had some kind of a rapport yeah. and I wanted to maintain it, you know, even right. though I realized he was touch and go about some of the outs- outlandish ideas or things he was thinking. But OK, we're communicating. And um, and I had not had a chance to just drive there and you know meet paul like i to my dying day i will regret not having just told the wife i'll be back in a few days get in the car and go all the way out there and maybe talk to paul and see what's going on but john goes and visits paul it was a couple of weeks later that i got a call from paul all of a sudden and he was livid i have never heard him he had never been angry before anytime i've talked but this time he was mad about something to do with John. The best I could even recall to this day is John had said he would do something or promised he would do something. You know, I'm sure John can explain all this if he wants in his own way, because I don't really know what was said. I wasn't there. But Paul was royally pissed. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and he was livid. And it was all I could do to kind of try to make sure to get across to him that Paul, I had nothing to do with John. You know, if John goes there and talks to you, he's on his own there. I'm, I was, you know, I don't want you to think that I'm somehow, you know, backing John and I wanted John to get to you. I had nothing to do with John. I can't stop him from going and knocking on your door. And so the conversation didn't last very long. He was mad. I felt like he kind of calmed down a little bit. What, but he didn't say what he was mad about. No, it was just the impression I got was John had said he'd help do something. I, I, I have the impression if my memory is correct. Like I said, it was so in my face, in my ear when he's yelling and I'm trying to hear what it was. It may have had something to do with John had given Paul the impression he would go make some connections with some people that he would get them to come talk to Paul or that he would put Paul in touch with, uh, who I don't know who, the right people, somebody of consequence to Paul. And, right. apparently, and, and this was later on. This was like 85, 86 or something like that? Yeah, this was this was after I'd met John, so it was after the conference. Okay. I was talking to Paul. We'd gone to the Crestone Conference. It wasn't long after that, and that's probably where you could come up with a good date on it. It was freezing, and so it had to be in the fall or winter sometime up in, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure Linda Howell can remember the dates because she rode back with us in the car. But the point was, it was some shortly after this, John had gone to talk to Paul. I was home back in Dallas. Paul calls and he is royally ticked at John for something John promised or suggested or 
made Paul believe he was going to do for him, and then nothing happened. John vanished or just dropped it. I, I don't know. I don't know, but he was mad. But I felt like it had been calmed down when I got off the phone with Paul. And um, I was like, oh, man, <laughs> you know, whatever <laughs> it happened. Okay, you know, yeah, I'll talk to you here in a little bit. Fine. Wasn't long after that. It may have even been just a matter of days that Linda Howe calls me and says, have you talked to Paul? And I'm like, well, yeah, just the other day he was pissed off. But, yeah, I talked to him the other day. She said she'd try to call his number and it's been unlisted. Ah. Whoa, really? I called it. Sure enough, at the request of the family, the number is unlisted. You know what? At that point, I was still, I would have told you I was 90% positive I'll hear from Paul in a couple of days. Either he's changed his number for reasons of his own, but he and I were, I thought, I thought, he and I were always on good enough terms. Yeah. You know, like I said, he'd call, he'd always answer. He'd call me at times and tell me things. And he called me and said he was pissed off. And but I was sure he'd call me. Okay, I'll hear from him in a few days. But I never heard another word from him. And I never could get in touch with him. I don't know what happened. Of course, you know more maybe than I do of what subsequently came after that, that his family had kind of, I guess, had some kind of intervention with him. And um, and for whatever reason, though, it's hard for me. It is hard for me to think of a guy that I at least thought of as a friend and thought a lot of. And we talked numbers of times about these kinds of things. Um, you know, this is one of the things in my memory that's hard for me to remember because Tommy Bland and I, and I believe it may have been before this. I, I need to check with Tom on it. We did go one time and we, we were in Albuquerque at one, another one of the conferences. Um, and we had gone to Paul's house, knocked on the door and he opened the door. <laughs> he thought we were the pizza guy. You know, or he probably wouldn't have opened the door. But like you've heard described, you know, by that time, he must have been chained smoking and he really, really looked, looked disheveled. And he just kind of opened the door a little bit. And, you know, and Tom was like, get his foot in the door. And we talked to Paul. And we went in and talked. And his wife was there. And we it wasn't very long. We met him for a little while. Um, but for the life of me, I, yeah, I wish I could remember the exact dates now. It, it was close in this time frame, but I just can't recall whether we happened to get there after the situation with John. I don't believe it was. I mean, we must have stopped at Paul's house before this. Right. But needless to say, I never talked to Paul again. So I, it couldn't have been, you know, after he, the phone was uh, unlisted. And later on, years over the years, and before I wrote this book, you know, I had, I called at one point in, to Thunder Scientific and tried to talk to one of his sons, and he was very polite. Um, I don't remember if it was Matt that I spoke with at this point. He was very polite, but it was like, you know, if Paul wants to talk to you, it's his job to call you. You know, they can't, they didn't want to, and I realized that they probably didn't want to have anything more to do with it at that point. But I never talked to Paul again, and all I'd heard eventually, you know, was when he passed away, and that was heartbreaking to feel like all that's gone. I did write a letter to his wife, or I just addressed it to his house and his wife, basically just trying to express to her that whatever anybody might think and whatever they're entitled to do what they want with the stuff he had. But those films that Paul took from his roof the night that she, he says she was out there with him, save those films. And I wanted to try to express to her that my conviction that that's what caused all the problems that came later. Right. Yeah. You know, but if she's got them, if the sons have those films, whatever they wish to do, and I don't know that they still do. You know, maybe they just got so fed up with it and they just tossed everything. 
Um, I've heard some, you know, maybe Paul didn't even take good care of them. You know, I've heard some things through uh, other people. Robert Hastings implied at times, you know, that you know, by that time, Paul may have just been stuffing films in a box. And who knows where yeah, any of what that happened to that box? Goes. Yeah, unfortunately. So I don't. Yeah, I don't. But needless to say, you know, I've always tried to maintain a, to be a proponent that whatever anybody might say of things that are attributed to Paul and things that other people like Krista Tilton and some of them have written about the underground bases and the vats and body parts and all of that. <laughs> I mean, enough a funny story on that. Back when all of that was coming out, <laughs> I won't use the definitive descriptive term. Back when all <laughs> that was coming out, I remember at one point, John Lear called me and says, boy, he's met or heard or knows this guy who's got, you know, these pictures. Somebody he knows claims to know a guy, right? I know a guy who knows a guy who's got pictures from the underground base. And I'm like, okay, have you seen them? Well, no, no, no. I've got, okay, what have you seen? Well, the guy that I know has got these drawings that are supposed to be of these pictures of what this other guy supposedly took. And I'm like, John, you got nothing, You've got somebody who's made some sketches, supposedly, of some photos that supposedly were taken by this guy, who supposedly, and John's like, man, I wish you were, you're so much more logical than I am. <laughs> like, God's sakes. You know, why? I don't, I don't, what was I supposed to do? You know, but uh, even, even then, that was when I was talking to John, and I think, ah, the last thing that ever, you know, like I said, even after John talked to Paul and Paul was angry, I couldn't blame anything on John. I don't know what it was all about. I don't know what transpired, you know, but the last time that I dealt with, you know, with John was, and, and I think it was the breaking point for me was when I'd gone to John's house, I had flown there to visit a friend who was in going to Vegas and having a good time. And so I just was going to kill two birds with one stone and um, long story about that too. But I went to John's house for a little while. You know, he lived in Las Vegas, and um, beautiful house. I mean, amazing place. You know, tennis court, I think, horse stables, knock knockout place. Yeah. And um, and he had his office set up. You know, with whatever was going on. But he had happened to mention to me that, um, God, it was at Robert. Not, I remember the guys in, anyway, Bill Cooper, I think it was Bill Cooper had supposedly been at John's house and was talking about having been in the Navy and made a comment that he had seen this Krill memo, OH Krill memo that was right, going around. Right. He had seen it. And John said during a break in the, the, apparently there was a film news crew, somebody interviewing Cooper. And John says during a break, I brought Cooper over. To the, off to the side, and I asked him, this is what gets me, and I'm standing right there. And John says, and I asked him, how can you claim to have seen the O.H. Krill memo when we made it up? <laughs> and I'm like, wait, John, what, what? What did you just say? Yeah, John is telling me that he's telling, he's basically admitting to me that he and another guy, I, I don't quote me on this, I'm I don't know if it was John Grace or some other guy, some other person who wanted to get into the UFO lecture circuit. Okay, so some guy needs to needs a hook. He said they made up this O.H. Krill memo. O.H. standing for original hostage. 
I believe that was the term. The krill was just, I guess, from the, you know, Forbidden Planet krill. But actually, it was the, in one of the pieces of disinfo that was sent to Paul from um, a guy that was either with a defense contractor or with the NSA or well, CIA. I can't remember. He actually used that term, uh, krill, as a oh, as a part of an alien race or uh, the name okay. of an alien race. And there you go. And maybe that's where the impetus for it came from. But John is telling me that whatever this little document that had circulated, the OH Krill memo, it was supposed I, I don't even recall what it was about. I think I may have read it once, and it was just a bunch of hooey as far as I was concerned, you know, with no real no credibility to check on. But John tells me that he is basically confronting Cooper with Cooper's claim to have seen this when he was in the Navy. And John's like, how the hell can you have seen it? when you were in the Navy, when we made it up. Yeah. Because it was something they were going to use that this other person who wanted to kind of break into the UFO lecture circuit, they were going to use this as his thing. And I'm, I looked at John and I said, John, how can you be standing there telling me who I have done everything I can to try to take this matter seriously, to try to help Paul, to try to, I see the UFO phenomenon as something that, needs to be looked at seriously, and you're out here fabricating documents. You're faking these silly things. Even though, frankly, I had heard, even at one point, John came into Dallas, and he was going to give a radio interview. By now, like I said, John's celebrity claiming he knew about aliens and he knew MJ-12. He was somebody. He's coming into Dallas to do an interview. I drove him to the, you know, to the radio station. John's behind the glass. I'm sitting in the, you know, in the tech room where the guy's doing the you know, sound guy. And John basically says, oh yeah, he thinks there's like 80 species of aliens visiting this planet. And I am trying to crawl out the door from something like, how in the why, where is he getting this, right? Why would he say such a thing? Needless to say, I began to have a real fractured sense of John, and especially then owning a, claiming that he had you know, fabricated the Krill memo, I said, John, I can't have anything to do with you anymore after this. I can't be seen siding with you if you're out here fabricating documents that are you know, taking, making people take this subject as ridiculous. What, yeah, I was stunned. I just am stunned. It'd be like if I suddenly sat here in front of you and claimed all this stuff was nonsense and I made it all. Yeah, it just would, it, it was amazing to me that John Lear, being who he was, would be promoting some of this most outlandish stuff. And then somehow he goes and talks to Paul and Paul blows up. And I don't know. And of course, we can talk about it later if you want. But, you know, once I began to sense this whole <laughs> Laos connection in the CIA and suddenly John's here and Dodie's here and all this other stuff, now I have serious questions about you know, about John's role in all this, but, you know, you can't, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. And what I can prove is limited, but it's very highly suspicious to me. And I think maybe this is part of what was done. The whole Myrna Hansen thing just kind of grew. It blossomed into the whole underground bases with bat bats and body parts, I don't know, bats with body parts in them, mm -hmm. and the whole craziest scenario of aliens going in underground places and who knows what. It, all of that just became fomented by these characters that just came in and seemed to ride on this bandwagon and just burn everything down. You know how that goes. So yeah. suddenly 
when people think of Paul, that's what they think of. Right. You know? And that that's, uh, I think that's the point uh, both of us made is a lot of the stuff that was going on in the 80s and early 90s was um, uh, it, it's still going on and it built upon itself and became part of the mythology that people believe and they don't really know where it came from. And, you know, as you say on the show, somebody actually in front of you admitted to making some of it up. Um, stuff that I've heard repeated over and over and over again in various places by various people and various forums and at conferences, et, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, people like Phil Schneider. Yeah. Do I, do I would I, and, and no, I never followed that ass, that fringe element of this whole thing. You know, I never followed that. But would I, do I necessarily think he was a part of this, some organized counterintelligence disinformation campaign? No. We don't need that. Even Doty, to his credit, has said, you know, you, you light the fires in certain places and some of these fringe people just pick it up and run with it yeah. and take it on their own. So, yeah, at some point you get the snowball rolling and now it's downhill on its own, you know, initiative, building up steam, getting bigger. And the whole thing just at some right. point you can't even tell what was real because there's too much crap around it. Yeah. Uh, we we have run out of our two hours. Although I guess we could go on for another really? two hours. <laughs> that was the fastest two hours. <laughs> yeah, you know when I wrote to you, you before the show, you said, "Can we take a? Are we going to take a break in the middle?" I said, "Yeah, yeah we I can." I, in the middle, I, you were going gangbusters, so I just let you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I can talk about all this, and there's so much more. <laughs> oh no, there's there's you know uh, the reason I wanted to have you on the show at, at least this time, and probably again, I'm, I would like to is that there is so much of this material that people either don't know about or haven't paid attention to. I certainly haven't paid as close of attention as I should have, and I apologize for that, which is why I wanted to have you on the show. Uh, seriously, so, your angle, and I, I, I do think I called you after I read your book and complimented you on it because there was a lot of material in there that I would still like to even ask you questions about. You know, Heineck, the computer, some of these things and where the information came from because some of that may not be provable, but it does mean there's a lot more going on no, behind no. Yeah. scenes that anybody even is aware of. I threw a lot of these things out there, particularly the thing with the Heineken and the computer, um, because I want somebody to come back to me with some sort of confirmation of this. Obviously, you know, Heineken isn't going to, but um, QFOs, I wrote to them at least twice, maybe more than that, and they said they'd get back to me, and they never did. I did not tell them what I was... I just said, do you have... Um, diary entries or papers from J. Allen Hynek from the period of you know nineteen uh, you know nineteen eighty nineteen eighty two or something like that. I'd like I'd, I'd you know and there might be a clue in there. I wanted to see, but they they you know they were they just thought I was a crazy person or something and didn't want to <laughs> get back to me. But the, the point of of putting a lot of these things out here is not because I'm trying to spread a rumor. It's because I want somebody like you said to confirm it in some way. Um, yeah, putting I, it I out agree. there. Let's. It doesn't mean I support it. It doesn't mean I necessarily believe it. Even though Bill told me, and I trust. You know, so far he hasn't lied to me that I can tell. But I mean, to get that out there and to see if you can get confirmation of these things. Um, and now, I don't. I don't care about confirmation of OH curl or anything like that. I'm talking about what did Paul see? When did he see it? When did the Air Force get in touch with him? The, these things are interesting to me because it's um, it's a story I was very interested in. I still am, and. Also, on, in the bigger picture, I think like we said at the beginning, if you know what the fake stuff is, which is fascinating on its own. I mean, it's like a spy story. 
maybe you can concentrate on the stuff, the, a true unknown, and what that might be. And just get, get the noise factor down to the point where you can filter out some of this crazy stuff, the stuff that is designed in some cases to lead you astray. Yeah, I mean, and I don't fault, I mean, I will say, just maybe he's listening, you know, that, it's the, what was it, the Rumsfeld's unknown unknowns, you know, the things that you don't even yeah. know that you don't know. Yeah. That whatever, you know, however heartbreaking the idea is that Paul may have been subject to some kind of disinformation effort to totally blow his credibility and it eventually blows his mind over the edge, that you don't know why that would be done. Why would you, you know, whoever, and I don't believe Dodie was calling the shots at all. I mean, no. if anybody asks me, I think there's, there's some CIA connections way beyond all of this stuff. But whoever would sanction doing this kind of thing to a civilian, you know, in fairness, you might think maybe there are some extenuating circumstances way deeper than I've even conceived of, or than I know of. Yeah. That if somebody came and explained to you this is why this had to be done, that you might just, you know, you wish Paul had just shut up, or if he had just yeah, gone exactly. Along. No, I, but, I, I do not condone any of this stuff. I think it was wrong. I think that most of the players in the story think it was wrong. But yeah, if you could find out based, specifically yeah. what you know, what was your justification for this? I don't agree with you, but I'd like to hear your justification. Yeah, and it may be that under the circumstances, it was the bad decision, but it was the best decision that could be made under the circumstances. Right. That and and for the question even about Heineck and the computer, that doesn't mean that there's some Machiavellian you know underpinnings behind Heineck. We don't know what he even knew. He right. may have been given a perfectly excellent reason for just give this thing to Paul and everybody will be happy. Yeah. And he had no idea what was going on or that it was loaded with software to make Paul think, you know, say the craziest things you've ever heard. I don't, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, but you're yeah. right. I mean, if you don't have access to the information, how can you even know? You know, how can, and I don't want to be, you know, yes, I mean, I'm aggravated about some of the things. And even like John Lear, I will say he was a nice, fun guy to hang out with. And Dodie might be the same way. And Bill may be very well be the same way. I'm not going to blame anybody for things that I don't know when I don't know, you know, I wasn't in their shoes. Um, it's frustrating to be in my shoes <laughs> and wanting to know and wanting to try to do something right. But as I told my friend today, we were talking, I said, you know, at the time, nobody can blame you if you make the best decision you could at the time. You know, do I know that I did right by publicizing the films and the things that I knew at the about you know all this stuff in the book, I had to make a heart-wrenching decision. How do I hold my head up if I don't tell anybody what I do know when everybody's looking for the same answers I'm looking for? Yeah. And if nobody comes to me and says, don't do it because this is the reason, well, I might have understood the reason. So I'm not claiming, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm not saying I feel necessarily great about everything, but I make the best decision that I can. And at some point, I kind of agree with at least uh, the last interview that Lou Elizondo said, you know, whatever your decision is, that's fine, but you have the right to have the conversation. You know, you need to know. People need to have the right to make the decision, and if nobody tells them what's going on, right, they can't blame them if they make the wrong decision. Mm -hmm. And maybe some of the things I've made were wrong, but at least the information's out there as honest as I could put it. Right. If people want to get X Descending, I guess you could, it's only available in Kindle right now, right? 
Well, Kindle PDF, you can order it off of uh, my own website, Excess Publishing. Um, but I think you can order it under any format from Amazon as well. Maybe a quicker way to do it that way. But I do have, <laughs> I still have plans that every day I think about at some point I'm going to pu- publish this in, you know, in book form. Um, it's always there's some last little bit of information that might need to go in volume two that I'm waiting to find out. But uh, hopefully at some point I will. All right. And, uh, yeah. What did you say? That, what, what's the name of the publishing company on, online? Uh, or my, my own website is Xdesk Publishing xdeskpublishing.com. Oh, xdesk, uh, D-E-S-K. <laughs> yeah, it actually derived from um, xdescending, x-d-e-s-c. Oh, when okay. I was writing it, I abbreviated it as xdesk. And then eventually it got to be, well, that's a catchy name, so I'll just use xdesk publishing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so it's d-e-s-c. Yeah, oh, x-d-e-s-k, okay, okay. xdesk. Oh, okay, you know, so it is published. Yeah, the xdesk publishing is online. You can find okay. it. If you look me up, you'll get it. Okay. Uh, one of the listeners, Phil, says, uh, please return. This sounds very interesting. And also, it sounds incomplete. And also, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have uh, uh, Chris Lambright on again, and we'll continue with this line of, uh, of uh, uh, questioning and, um, and exploration and uh, uh, the ideas that came out of this and what, what we should do with them. So thanks so much, Chris. Okay, anytime. Keep it fresh. We can do it as soon as you want if you like. All right. Um, the, uh, and the guest always, and I didn't tell you this, the guest always gets to pick the outro music. All right. Well, um, you can go out with Paul McCartney when I'm 64. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I have reached that. <laughs> it was supposedly something he wrote long ago for his father when his father turned 64. Yeah, here, well, we'll yeah, <laughs> here we go. Song. Yes, it is. Well, I like old Beatles. We'll have songs. some disclosure and it'll all happen when I'm 64. <laughs> all right, thanks so much, Chris. All right, have a good night. You too. Bye <laughs> bye. Bye.
God, drop me a line.